Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going this evening, man? How, uh, how you been? It's been a while since we've recorded. It's been like two weeks, I think. It's been too long. Uh, I, I'm very excited to dive back into the world of Hammer. Rock on. Now, just Hammer or Hammer Pub, uh, are, are you excited about having a Drinker 5 tonight, Paul? Or have you already had that Drinker 5? Well, um, it's it's funny you should say that, uh, Jinx, because I, I came from a, uh, a family barbecue this evening uh, where I had several drinks. Um, so I'm, you know, I've already visited uh, the Hammer Pub. And so I am I am knee deep in drinks and I have yet more drinks in front of me. So I uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I am still teetotaling, but I tell you, I feel kind of drunk, man. I am, uh, I'm sort of, <laughs> I've been run ragged this weekend preparing for a big trip that I'm about to take and uh, finally took its toll, I think, or uh, it kind of knocked me down a little bit. And I'm, so I'm a little, I'm a little wonky this evening. I'm a little uh, strung out. So uh, between you being drunk and me, you know, being five minutes from, you know, sleep, uh, this podcast is just going to be a blast, I think. Uh, but that's okay because we're talking Taste the Blood of Dracula, which is, uh, I think it's good hammer. I think it's solid hammer. I don't think it's top tier. So, uh, you know, maybe, uh, I, I don't think we're going to let too many people down if we uh, run a little off the rails tonight. Because in its own way, Taste the Blood of Dracula is all about running off the rails. That's true. That's true. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm here. I'm here all for right. it. Tell you what, before we talk Taste the Blood of Dracula, though, let's go ahead and talk about some recent watches. It's been a couple of weeks. We yeah. should be able to fill out a full at least three selections each, but we'll try and rock it through them as quickly as we can because, well, you got to get up early and you're already going to be hungover, man. And uh, me, I'm going to nod <laughs> off at any point anyway. So I'll tell you what. Yeah, three... my, my night is pretty much shot, so it's cool. <laughs> like, we can go as late as we want. But yes, I mean, if I can get more sleep, that would be good. But, uh, you know. I'm here for the long haul, whatever we need to do. <laughs> Tell you what, man. Pick a movie. Last couple of weeks that you've seen. Oh, shit. I, I have seen a lot uh, these these last couple of weeks, and there's several I want to talk about. But you know what? I think I'm going to start with sort of a sequel conversation to what we talked about last week. Oh. Because I finally completed my Saw watch through nice. by renting Spiral. Yes. So I have now seen every Saw film, and I feel very good about it. I feel complete. Are you happy that you did it? I am. And I got to say, um, and, and look, you know, I'll be the first to admit, I, I try to be very positive. Sometimes I'm a little bit of a naysayer. And I was kind of a naysayer about the Saw franchise. As, you said as nay. Jinx Walls, no. You said uh, nay a and, lot. And I, I, but I, I, I will always admit, when I was wrong and I was, I was wrong about the soft franchise. There, there is a lot there to enjoy. Paul, I'm sorry. Um, um, you, you, I'm I sorry. Was your wrong. audio, I was your, wrong. your audio cut out for a <laughs> I, second. I admitted I just, it. I, I what, just, I'm saying it out loud. I can't. The soft franchise is a solid franchise. I very much enjoyed watching it. I, I, it, it was, it was a lot of fun. I'm actually looking forward to watching it again someday. That's how you know that the the overall experience was good. 
But enough about the franchise. We we should talk about Spiral. Now, you already talked at length about Spiral, so I don't need to go too deep into it. But what I'll say is this. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. It fits more in line with uh, uh, what Jigsaw did um, than, than what a lot of the Saw sequels did. It's, it's very much its own thing. Um, it, it, in fact, I would say out of all the sequels, it's probably the most distinct movie. Um, the one that feels maybe like the least like the franchise because it's not super interested in being um, knee deep in the mythology, like a lot of the other sequels are. And even Jigsaw gets deeper into the mythos than, than Spiral does because Jigsaw, you know, brings in John Kramer. Um, whereas Spiral kind of like references him, but doesn't really, you know, involve him in the, the overall narrative. But having said that, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. Um, I thought it was a really clever way of trying to make the Saw franchise sort of relevant again in the horror conversation and allowing new viewers to come into it without having to have this like very deep entrenched uh, knowledge of the mythology. Um, I thought Chris Rock was, I mean, I, it's weird. It's I've read a lot of things. Some people seem to uh, feel like Chris Rock didn't really carry the movie. Well, I thought Chris Rock was great. I thought he was really funny, but also, you know, had a lot of pathos. Um, I don't know. I thought he was a great leading man. I, I really did. I thought he carried the film well. I was really interested in his story. Um, I, Jinx, you mentioned that you felt like some people were sort of taking it to task for not being this, uh, oh, I don't know, message movie, I guess, about uh, the police and sort of what it was touching upon. Um, but also called out the fact that the movie never really like promised that it was going to be that. So it's a weird thing to hold it accountable to. Yeah. Um, and I totally agree. Like the, the, the trailers and everything do not make any promises and nobody gets mad at the nineties, uh, serial killer dramas for also not being that, you know, no one, (laughs) no one says like, well, seven doesn't say anything about cops being shitty, you know? So that movie's bad now. Um, so I, I thought the movie was a really fun time. I thought the traps were hard hitting and, uh, you know, effective. Um, they, they didn't feel as like overly convoluted as some of the ones in the later saw movies did. So I appreciated that. Like it, it felt a little bit more homegrown. So in some ways, like it, and this is going to feel weird coming from me because, I'm sort of like the we- the weird take I have on Saw is I'm not a huge fan of the first one, but this one felt a little bit more in line with the first one, <laughs> but I liked it. <laughs> like it, it felt like it was trying to go back to that original formula a little bit. Um, and I appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. Like kind of back to basics, but uh, you know, it's weird. It does feel like kind of a restart. It feels like the beginning of its own series. And yet in a weird way, even though it leaves you on a cliffhanger ending. I don't feel like, and I hope to be proven wrong about this because I really did like Spiral, but I don't know that I see a whole hell of a lot of story existing beyond the confines of that that one movie. You know what I mean? Like, I can see seeing Chris Rock's character again within the Saw universe. I can see... Uh, uh, no spoilers here. I could see another character obviously popping up 
you know, in the Saul movies, but I don't know that I can see Spiral being its own separate thing in the way that I, maybe yeah, they yeah, no, you know I, what I, mean? I yeah, I agree. I think the only I don't know, I would be I'd be down okay, for it. So with the history of what Saw is, I would kind of be down to see like Chris Rock become this like jaded almost like the carry what they sort of hinted at with Carrie Elways, where like he's now this like jaded begrudging sort of person in Jigsaw's arsenal. Like, you know, you, you Chris Rock's character definitely has a lot of like ill will towards the the police and the institution you, that protects corruption. Like it would think, be kind of interesting oh, to see him go down that path. Do you think he can though and this is okay folks out there like this might get a touch spoilery. I'm not gonna actually outright say anything, but if you find yourself to be uh pretty intuitive, maybe skip the next thirty seconds or so. If you've already seen Spiral or you don't give a damn continue listening. But Paul, I get what you're saying and I feel like a certain character in the movie wanted and expected that Mm -hmm. from rock's character. And maybe upon, you know, rewatches, maybe that's something that doesn't play as well for me because even though that seemed genuine, the final act, the final moment of the movie seems to me that it would forever turn rock's character, Zeke against that against that possibility against jigsaw's yeah yeah you know what i mean like there's there's no way that that you're right i mean it would be counterintuitive to the character the movie presents but (laughs) if you're gonna make more movies you'd you'd have to do something and that would be interesting i guess like But I I don't know how else you bring that character back short of repeating yourself a little bit or engaging with the greater mythology of Saw. Like, you know, I think a spiral sequel would would almost have to just dive a little deeper into mythology that it sort of distances itself from. Um, But I don't know. I mean, you know, they could they could surprise me. I mean, I, I really, I'm a little surprised by the direction the series has gone in general um, because of, again, how like dependent it is on plot earlier on. So the fact that they're like willing to, you know, go in these really different directions is cool. And also here's one thing that I would like to say about it that I haven't heard a lot of people say. Um, it's really cool to see Darren Lynn Bowsman get like a budget again. Yeah. Um, and he's a great director. And I actually think this movie really shows how much he's grown as a director. Um, I think it's a much more mature film than we've seen from him before. And I think it shows that he really does have the chops to make bigger, more impressive movies. Um, so I hope that this spawns, more projects for Bowsman. I do too. That that guy knocked it out of the park early yeah. on in his career. He's only gotten better, like you said, but it seemed like the opportunities for him dried up a little bit, you know, or at least the kind of opportunities that we expected from him. You know, like he he had the number one movie in America for the first three years of his career. And then after that he was sort of relegated to uh 
you know, uh, the direct video arena. And it's like this, why, why would you, you know, but then you watch spiral and it's like, there is a movie that has all the scope and sheen and precision that you would expect out of a big screen thriller like that. Give this man more opportunities. Um, yeah. Give him, give him Leprechaun. Damn it! Oh, um, absolutely! <laughs> it's 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 insane that like he even has to fight for that. It should just be something that's handed to him. But I mean, he got he got screwed over. I mean, just like a lot of independent directors or up and coming directors who have something to say. Like when he made um, Repo, like he really it, the whole Repo experience kind of put him in a bad position with Lionsgate and. Um, made made him upset, made them upset, and it just sent things down a different path, I think, than had he just done what they wanted him to do. Um, and I think that's a the mark of a, a of a good artistic mind, but maybe one that's detrimental to his own career because <laughs> yeah, he wanted yeah. to do something that they didn't want him to do and he did it anyway <laughs> which i respect the hell out of i really like repo um but you oh, know, i think the studio didn't know movie. what the fuck that was and didn't know what to do with it and we're like well this isn't marketable and you know dumped it on video but which anyway. is, you know that's <laughs> to me the fact that they did that like tells me that they learned nothing from saw Right. which was meant to be a direct-to-video movie, and they went theatrical with it, and it was huge because they tapped into an audience that they admittedly probably didn't even know was there, but they discovered was there, and then they were able to exploit it. They should have done the same damn thing with Repo. They didn't realize that they potentially had a Rocky Horror on their hands, right? and they could have made it this big hit if they'd known how to do it, but somebody got cold feet, somebody was a coward, and they... They did what they did with it. They allowed him to take it on a road show. I think three different road shows he took it on. And then the damn thing pretty much went straight to DVD, you know, it's, mm-hmm. which is heartbreaking because that movie is fucking incredible. Oh, it's um, so fun. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm glad you like Spiral. I'm glad you're cool with the Saw franchise, man. Um, I am. I've, I've, I am now. We are. We're cool. Yeah. <laughs> Saw and I are cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm going to pull a Paul. And uh, I'm going to talk about a movie right at, at the off here uh, that is maybe not horror. And by maybe, I mean it's not at all horror. <laughs> but, you know, there, it's it's grim and it's got a grit to it. I think it would appeal to people who like darker cinema. Uh, and, it, Paul, it's a big surprise to me. It's a movie called Writers of Justice, which is mm. before you see the movie and after you see the movie is a terrible fucking title. Um, and if you watch the trailer, the trailer makes it look like this direct-to-video action revenge flick, like very rote, very, you've seen this a million times before. But the thing is, Paul, is that it stars Mads Mikkelsen, who is fresh off okay. Okay. of this movie called... Okay, I know called, what you're yeah. talking about. Oh, dude, yeah, it's... Okay, so he's fresh off this movie called Another Round, which is... Uh, it came out last year. I saw it this year. It's one of my favorite movies that I've seen in ages. It's fucking incredible. It's this great Danish kind of a hangout movie about guys who uh <laughs> who hear this theory that humans are born with a blood alcohol level that's 0. 0.5 percent too low so they decide to start drinking uh during their day jobs and these guys are all like teachers uh to see if it will improve their performance in their lives and uh and then the plot goes from there and it's god it's incredible like it's it's there's there's pure joy 
in that film. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's but it's also really heavy at times too, and he's brilliant in it. Anyway, I'm not talking about another round, even though you should see it. It's on Hulu. <laughs> I've heard I've Hulu. heard about that one too, and it's on my list, but I haven't watched yeah. it yet. Man, it's 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 an experience. It really is. Uh, but no, Mickelson, Mickelson's great. He, the dude seems to be a mark of quality. Uh, you know, when, whenever he appears in a movie, generally that's a thumbs up for me. So, uh, Paul, I gotta tell you, I had to give this movie a look and I gotta tell you, it is one of the best films I've seen all year by year's end. I think it will remain one of the best films of the year. Um, it is, I don't want to dig too deeply into it just beyond the setup, um, Basically, Mickelson plays a guy who is who has a military background. And again, this is all going to sound very... I've seen this a million times before, right? But his wife is killed in what appears to be kind of a, uh, a localized terrorist attack, uh, leaving his young daughter alive, and that's it. And he is approached by a gentleman who's on the train who believes he has information on the person responsible for the bombing. And from that point on, you expect it to become kind of a... Uh, you know, kind of a revenge flick, right? And it is, you know, there there is this, you know, it has this mix of, yeah, like brutal violence, but also there's a lot of heart to it. It kind of approaches something along the lines of uh, Man on Fire. Like, not, like plot-wise, they couldn't be more different, but tonally, yes, you know, mm-hmm. definitely. But quality-wise, this approaches that film as well. But the thing is, is that this movie is also laugh out loud funny at times there is this ragtag crew that is sort of brought together with the same designs like uh you know the same mission as it were but for wildly different reasons each one of them and they're such characters like they feel like real human beings who are put in this horrible and bizarre situations and they react accordingly in a very realistic way but it's also, again, terribly, terribly darkly funny. And uh, just all of them. Like, this is a movie filled with very likable and very human characters. You know, each of them has kind of a very relatable struggle. And, you know, uh, how they all work together within this framework of a traditional revenge film is just fascinating. Um, I think it, it also has some really interesting things to say about, you know, kind of causality in a situation like this. And, uh, and I'm not going to get too spoilery, but it features, <laughs> features a genuinely stunning surprise that kind of underscores that idea in the film's final act. But, um, you know, it's just, it's really interesting to me. It, it's, it's a thrilling movie. It is a brutal movie. It's, it's like I said, it's got a lot of heart. It's funny as hell. And, uh, you know, ultimately it, 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 it kind of occupies this ground where it illustrates, you know, like, like the futility of vengeance. Sure. But also, you know, and we've seen plenty of movies like that, you know, like Korean revenge cinema is all about that notion. Right. Uh, But it's also, it seems to me like uh, about the necessity of confronting evil and not simply being complacent in a world full of evil. So that there is a line there between, you know, uh, um, again, seeking vengeance, you know, being kind of a destructive act, but also doing nothing, you know, in the face of such evil, you know, is kind of seen as a negative in the film too. And how it wrestles with those two ideas at once, again, within the framework of what should, what would expect it to be 
kind of a simple rote action revenge flick. It, it's just kind of amazing to me. Like I said, the movie knocked me on my ass, and uh, I, I think it will remain one of my favorite movies of the year. Wow, I have to uh, see this. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Uh, so that is going high on my list. Is that uh, streaming anywhere, or uh, how do you how do you see that? That is, I think it's early access VOD, but it's not like I don't think it's like a twenty dollar title. I think you can rent it for like maybe six okay. bucks. I think I rented it for six bucks on um, on Amazon. Okay, cool. So yeah. I will be watching that very soon because <laughs> that's that was that was that's great. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Rock on. So what else have you seen? <clears throat> um, all right. Well, for the next thing, I'm going to talk about like two movies as one thing as opposed to two separate films. I'm going to talk about the two laid to rest movies because I watched them both. Yes. Um, and I didn't tell you I, for whatever reason, I I talked to you about watching Lead to Rest 1, but I didn't talk to you about watching Chrome Skull. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know why. It just occurred to me that I haven't even talked to you about this yet. So this is like hot off the presses. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I I, I don't know how I missed these. I, I'm just going to be honest. Like, I at, at the point Laid to Rest came out, which was, what, 2009? Yes, um, yeah. I was I was a horror fan. I was watching horror movies. I was like pretty up on what was going on. I was reading horror websites. For whatever reason, I just missed these. I didn't know about them. I think I had peripherally heard about them, but I just never encountered them. And so uh recently you wrote an article about <laughs> Uh, about these movies, about the actor who plays Chrome Skull. Yes, uh, um, Nick, Nick Principi. Yeah, and and that article kind of prompted me to want to check these movies out, finally. Um, and so I did what any, you know, Blu-ray collector does. I went on Amazon trying to buy them. And I was able to buy Chrome Skull, which is the sequel, pretty easily for, like, you know, 10 or 15 bucks. And, but the first one is like not available on Blu-ray, which drives me insane. So, um, I had to kind of find it. It was on my library app of all things, the hoopla library app oh, where wow. you can like, yeah, where you can like rent a movie for a week for free through your library. And so that's how I was able to watch laid to rest. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it, it gave me very strong, like hatchet vibes. Um, oh, totally. Very, very strong hatchet vibes. Yeah, both of them. Um, you know, and it, it just it feels like a very homegrown, you know, slasher, very uh, over the top gore, uh, all practical effects, uh, which was wonderful to see. What I really liked about Re Late to Rest, what I really, really enjoyed about it was it was a slasher ju that just it just doesn't bullshit around it's just like okay this is a slasher movie we're just gonna do the damn thing a woman wakes up in a coffin and a guy's trying to kill her and you're just you're in the last act of a slasher basically uh for the whole movie um and then she just kind of like runs away and meets random people and unfortunately for them 
by meeting this girl, they get involved in the slasher because they're going to be good people and try to help her. And I just really enjoyed how characters sort of came into the movie and then were killed. And um, I don't know, just it, it had an energy that you don't often see in movies. Um, now I feel like now movies are a lot more like contemplative and emotional you know, in the mid two thousands, it was just like, fuck it, let's go, let's kill people. Ah, everything's crazy, <laughs> and it, you know, they didn't give a shit about who these people were or if you cared about them or not. It was just supposed to be funny and entertaining, and you know, as gory as it could possibly be. And there's there's a charm to that. Um, and and as mean as it is, it it didn't. I don't know. It like it's different than Saw to me even though some of the gore and stuff is on the level of that, like saw is a little more quote unquote mean than I think laid to rest is. And I think part of that is because laid to rest is very much born out of the tradition of 80s slashers, which were very over the top and kind of silly uh, for, for how ridiculous they were Um, laid to rest too decides to take that idea and give it like a ludicrous amount of mythology, <laughs> like so much mythology that I was not prepared for. Um, and it doesn't even really like take the time to explain it. It's just sort of like this guy has a whole crew of people working for him that are helping him and doing this and doing that. And he's got a manager and, but it, but why? Like, who are these people? Why are they working for him? How do they get paid? Like, none of that's really explained. It's just, it just goes deep into how would a slasher figure operate? Like, how would they conceivably accomplish all that they accomplish? They would have to have, you know, this, this group of people that are like aiding them in their, in their, I don't know, violent quest for whatever reason. Um, and, it's it's again it's very silly and over the top um i really enjoyed it i think i like the first one more because i think the first one's a little bit more like the distilled version of what that whole franchise represents and and i will say the second one did kind of bug me in that like i appreciated all of the mythos that it was building but like again i had so many all it did for me was like raise a a ridiculous amount of questions. I'm like, why the fuck are these people doing this? Like, like how, like how, who's paying them? Like, why, why would they want to do it? Like, I don't know. I, it, it made me sort of be like, why is this happening as opposed to just watching the movie? But I did enjoy it. Um, but it, it was, it was a lot. (laughs) It was a lot to accept. Absolutely. I, you know, yeah. And Robert Hall, the guy who made those movies, obviously, you know, we lost him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's funny. I was, uh, I did the article with Nick Principi and then, um, he, a couple of years ago, he ran a Kickstarter trying to get, uh, laid to rest three funded, which oh, was going love, to be called. I'd love to see a laid to rest three. I would uh, love that. <laughs> well, it sounded like it was going to close out the trilogy. It was going to be called laid to rest exhumed. And it sounded like from what I had read and from what I had heard, the idea was to still get it made and that it was going to happen. Uh, the Kickstarter didn't happen, unfortunately, but you know, one imagines he would have found a way, but 
you know, I was I was going to do an article for Phantom Limbs on it just to chart what the story would have been and why, you know, it hadn't happened yet. And I was actually fortunate enough to get in contact with Robert Hall and uh, he was going to do an interview with me. Um, and it literally I, I spoke with him like five days before he passed away. And I was like, ah, you know, I never, we texted back and forth, but I never got the opportunity to actually speak to the man. I'd met him at a convention before and told him how much his movie, uh, lightning bug, uh, his directorial debut means to me. Um, but it was neat to tell him, you know, that I, I was at least a huge fan and I couldn't wait to write about, you know, Chrome skull in, you know, another article. So that was cool in itself, but I, it does bug me now. Yeah. That we, yeah, obviously that he's gone, you know, it was a tragedy too, but you're right as a fan, like you kind of want to know more about that character. And now, you know, we may never as it were, I, I, I don't know if I see anybody picking that character up and continuing that story on in his absence. Uh, I'm not sure if they should, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, for what we have for those two movies, you're right. They, they, I like the idea that, you know, his directorial debut, Lightning Bug, has so much heart in it, you know, and it's essentially a, a lightly fictionalized riff on his, uh, his own childhood, you know, being a teenager, wanting to be a makeup effects artist, always having his nose in a Fangoria, you know, practicing special makeup effects on, you know, people in his small Alabama hometown, you know, and uh, sort of the trials and tribulations and hardships he had to deal with. But um, it's a great film, loads of part. What's great about Laid the Rest and Chrome Skull is, you know, that's, they very much play like the movies that the guy from Lightning Bug would have grown up to, you know, make, which is kind of exactly what happened. And uh, mm-hmm. they definitely hearken back to the movies that he grew up with in the 80s, you know, all the slasher films that were a lot of fun. And like you said, unlike Saul, not really mean in that kind of way, it is more fun. But at the same time, what I love about them so much is the fact that they are in their own way infused with a bit of heart in a way that a lot of fun slasher movies from the 80s aren't, you know, the... And I'm not saying that these are heavy character pieces, but his characters are likable enough and they are three dimensional enough that you do, you do get invested in them in a way that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect. And, uh, I, I agree with you about, you know, the, the convoluted mythology in part two is a little, the first time I watched the movie, it was a little off putting. I was like, why, why is this organization so one yeah, big like, what the fuck like when, when it's you have a asking character... a lot of the audience to just accept <laughs> like it because it doesn't it, it's one of those movies where it's like they don't give a fuck about explaining any of it they just they're just going to show and and i respect that it, it, in some ways i respect the ballsiness of going there is an elite cia level organization helping this guy murder people well, see, like no, okay see, that's the cool. thing that's the thing i think okay so here's what i like about it i like that it obviously seems huge i mean when you have a character at the very beginning acting like there is almost like a federal level protocol like okay we need to follow c7 protocol it's like what the mm-hmm. fuck like really uh but at the same time i love that the movie invites you to make those connections for yourself and to make it make sense for yourself because to me like I'm like, okay, to me, the dude's either just insanely wealthy and he's 
built this organization for himself just to aid him in getting his rocks off killing people. Or maybe he is like this world-class assassin who, in his free time, likes to do this shit for fun. You know, it, it doesn't really matter. But I like that the movie's just kind of like, well, here's what you get, and just make it make sense for yourself. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, part of me, yeah, part of me yeah, doesn't want yeah. to know. Like, I don't need I a mean, backstory. I don't. Uh, I don't want Chrome Skull Begins. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't either. But like, by doing what the movie did, it's inviting me to ask that question. <laughs> like most slashers, don't give me enough ro- like rope to start to hang myself in that way. But this movie gives me so much rope. <laughs> like, it's it's almost like not my fault I'm asking these questions because it's giving me this organization that's helping him. I'm like, well, okay, I have to sort of like be a little curious about like all these people. And, and anyway, I mean, but at the same time, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. Um, but it, for that reason, I think the first one just feels a little more pure to me. And and I, I liked the... Uh, I don't know. I, I really like the characters in the first movie. Um, all of the characters that they meet are just really likable, enjoyable people. I also really liked how they defeated. I mean, I, I don't want to get into like spoilers for people who haven't seen it, but I liked how they defeated him in the first one. I, th- I liked how gruesome it was. I liked how kind of fucked up it was. And I, and I do like in the second one, like how they sort of, um, and again, not to, get into spoilers but like i like how they sort of like deal with that like how uh he's he's very fucked up now (laughs) and then there's no real coming back from that you know because they do establish that like he's i think in the first one they say he's like a doctor or something like a like a well like i think they do say he's wealthy so that could be a piece of it um but now like he can't really go back to his regular life and the, the post credit scene yes. at the end of the second one, like confirms that he, you know, had a life that he cannot return to. Yeah. 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 So, I love, I was going to ask if you watched the, uh, oh, the yeah, I did. Scene, so. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I accidentally watched it, <laughs> which happens yeah. a lot to me because <laughs> I, I just, you know, for all the movies that have post credit scenes, for whatever reason, it never occurs to me that a movie's going to have one. So I never check. So the only time I really ever see them is if I, like, just happen to leave the movie on while I'm texting or something. And then all of a sudden the movie's back on. I'm like, oh, shit, there's more. But, um, but yeah, so I did see that and it was, it was, it was good. So I, I hope that somehow, some way we do get a part three because I would like to see that. I mean, you know, I was thinking about it even after I said it. I'm like, you know, part of me wonders if that franchise should be continued on, you know, without Robert Hall. But another part of me is like, you know, I I, I would hope any creator, especially of a slasher character, I would hope they would be cool, even possibly giddy at the prospect that something they created would continue on well beyond them. You know, who knows? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would be. I would be super keen to see that character again. I'm amazed he was not, you know, that's the kind of character, you know, more so than some of the other slashers, the neo slashers that we got in the mid aughts to me, he, uh, he's probably the most deserving of like a NECA figure and, you know, uh, a, a trick or treat Chrome skull mask replica and blade replicas, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, multiple sequels and comic books, which apparently that was m- mooted at one point. There was going to be a uh, 
uh, a hatchet laid to rest crossover with uh, Victor Crowley and Chrome Skull in a uh, in comic book form. It just never came to pass. But I mean, that would have been badass. So uh, yeah, I, I I hope we see more of them. I I, I think it would be a blast. But uh, I'm glad you dug them. Uh, I'm glad you checked them out too. So if you get the chance, definitely check out Lightning Bug. It is uh, it's easily his best film. He also did another one called. Uh, he had done this web series called Fear Clinic, and then he wound up doing a feature film version of it. Mm. Wasn't completely successful for me, but there's a lot of really interesting, like, surreal stuff in it. A lot of great visuals. So, uh, definitely yeah, worth checking I, out. I saw that under his credits, um, and I don't know that if this is just, like, a bullshit credit or something that never happened, but it says there's an upcoming remake of Chopping Mall that he directed. So is that a thing? <laughs> he the last I heard it was years ago he was going to direct a remake of Chopping Mall that wasn't going to be it it was going to be one of those kinds of remakes in name only where it wasn't even going to be about killer robots in a mall dude it was going to be like something far far different but set oh, within okay. a mall you know so uh but yeah. yeah he was attached to it and that was you know sadly just another thing that didn't didn't come to pass okay so it just never got made all right yeah that, uh, that's what i was curious about but all right cool hey paul no, I'll check slashers. you said what speaking of slashers uh yeah. second movie i was going to talk about man the stylist have you seen this yet no i haven't uh i have not seen it Dude, dude, I so I took a trip to Grindhouse Video in Tampa. Uh, found out sadly that they're going to be closing by year's end. Had a good cry, uh, and then I was able to browse around for about two minutes. Oh my god, dude! It's so he's not really open to the public anymore, uh, but he's still online. He is going to open another store in Tennessee. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be something different, according to him. It's going to be more focused. Um, but yeah, he is he is he's not gonna be in Florida anymore, which means that one of my favorite hangouts is going to go away. So when I went there to pick up my online order, I asked him, I was like, Can I just look around like for old time's sake for like two minutes? And he was super cool, he let me. And I happened to see that the stylist was on the racks and I was like, Thank you. Uh went ahead and bought that. And uh man, you know, I've been looking forward to this for a while. I really like the short film. Uh, that this feature is based on. Arrow did a hell of a job putting it out. They gorgeous cover by Sarah Deck. Loads of bonus features, including that original short film on the Blu-ray. The movie itself, uh, which is uh, the directorial debut, feature directorial debut of Jill Gavargavizian. Paul, this movie, man, like I absolutely loved it. I was hoping that I would like it because I liked the short film and I thought it showed promise, but... I was not expecting this film Um, Mm. and not to give too much away. I mean, basically if you've seen the short film, you know what the basic setup is. Uh, Najara Townsend or yeah, Najara Townsend. I think, I think I pronounced her name right. I might be wrong. I'm sorry. Fine. Um, But uh, Ms. Townsend plays a uh, a hairstylist who has this, uh, well, this unfortunate predilection towards preying on some of her after hours clientele who may be from out of town and may not have any connections in the area because what she does, she drugs them, kills them and essentially scalps them. Mm. And she wears their scalps almost like their wigs and she adopts their personalities because as we find out, like she has this great sort of basement layer 
where she has all of these different mannequin heads with all of these different scalps with, you know, lovely hair spilling from each of them. And she will try different ones on and she adopts their personality from, you know, just the conversations that she was having with them before she, you know, whacked them as it were. And, um, you just get the feeling like she is more than being a sinister character. She's just very sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's completely lethal, but you get the feeling that she just more than anything, she wants to be anybody other than herself. You know, she's a very broken human being. And, um, it's interesting. The movie really gets going when one of her clients, one of her daytime clients, as it were, asks her to do her hair for her upcoming wedding. And they wind up kind of becoming friends outside of that, you know, relationship, as it were. And so they kind of get drawn into one another's orbit. They they grow closer as friends. And then things start to break down in a sort of natural way when the stylist becomes too attached and too needy and too, you know, <laughs> too stalkery in a way. And uh, and things go really, really badly from there. I, I, Paul, I absolutely love this movie. Like, sympathetic slashers, man, are my bag. Like, female slashers are so rare, so it's always nice to see one. Uh, I think I tweeted this, but like, Monster Makes a Friend is a favorite subgenre of mine, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. uh, like Psycho 2 is an absolute mm-hmm. fave of mine, and she is very Norman Bates in her own way. She's very likable, you feel bad for her, but she she's, again, very lethal. Um, but it's just, I mean, it's, 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 an, it's a great story, it's an excellent film, it's really stylish, it's a beautifully made movie. And uh, again, I just incredible lead performances from uh, Najara Townsend and uh, Bria Grant, who is in it and is wonderful too. So if you get the chance to check it out, definitely pick up that Arrow Blu-ray, man. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I uh, I have the Blu-ray on pre-order, so I should be getting it soon. It's it's not like officially out yet, so you got like an early copy. Oh, really? I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I ordered it on um, Amazon, and it says the release date is like, june 8th oh but maybe maybe they just got it late but it you know how it says like you know official release date or whatever on amazon when you order something uh so it lists it as the eighth i don't know i mean god maybe, maybe... i shouldn't have been tweeting about it then i feel bad now i didn't realize that i got like <laughs> no no i, I mean I maybe maybe amazon early. well the other thing is sometimes amazon gets things shipped later so it, their release date could be like shittier than like other people's release dates or something like maybe they just i don't know okay maybe that explains it then because i remember tweeting something about snagging that blu-ray from grindhouse and i tagged jill gavarga vizion uh in the tweet and i remember you responded like oh neat hall or something like that she liked your tweet but not mine not me not the guy who actually bought the blu-ray and i was like (laughs) which is fine like who cares but at the same time i was like Hey, I wonder what's up with that. And now that you tell me that, like, I think I know what's up with that. Like, I shouldn't have gotten the movie that early. I'll be damned. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, yeah. So, I mean, I when, once I get it, I'll watch it right away, um, and and let you know what I think. But I, I've been excited to see it for a really long time. I was hoping that I'd get to watch it at a like a Fantastic Fest, but then, you know, pandemic. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember. So what that. sucks is that movie should have should have gotten a really cool Fantastic Fest release, but ah, oh, well, things Paul, happen. 
I'm going to make a suggestion here. Hmm. Okay, I know you have an early morning. Um, what if I, I, for my final movie, I was going to pick a movie that I think you might also pick too. So mm-hmm. if we combine our final movies, mm-hmm. we can just rock it right into Taste the Blood of Dracula, but I might be wrong about this. So I tell you what, we'll see how it goes. Paul, what is your third movie? Well, I mean, I think I think it makes sense to uh to do the 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 third iteration of the Warren Adventures. <laughs> Oh, so you're saying we should talk a uh, little uh, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do little, a movie little that... Little uh, Conjuring. Little Conjuring. Movie that uh, which, nobody which watched. Which apparently, apparently is a controversial movie to like. A film with no controversy <laughs> attached to it. No wildly disparate takes on the film's quality or whether or not it should even exist. Um, yeah, man. Okay, so, yeah, all right. I'll, I've been drinking... Look, yeah. Conjuring Devil Made Me Do It is a super fun movie. It's it's very well made. Um, it, it's and and you know what, guys? Here's the thing: everyone's talking about how this movie is like, I don't know, drags or it's too long or it it, it jumps all over the place. I don't know what movie you were watching. Um, ev- compare this movie to every single other movie in the conjuring verse it is more focused and streamlined than anything else in that franchise i mean even even the original which i think is a classic i think it is a better film but like a hallmark of these conjuring movies is they're all over the fucking place these movies are always all over the place like they they jump from one random thing to another just so there's a ton of shit packed into its runtime which i think is one of the reasons people don't like this one as much because it's it's it admittedly there's less there there's a little less there but i like that i prefer it it feels more focused as a movie and a narrative and it feels like dare i say it a much tighter script than you get in a lot of these other movies, especially that second one, which I can't for the life of me get why. Anyway, I'm not going to go into that. Hey, but hey, 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 look, hey. look, look, they're all, they're all fun. Uh, I, me personally, I think this is the second best movie with conjuring in the title. That that's how I feel about it. Um, I, I really like the courtroom stuff. Could the courtroom stuff have been more robust? Could there have been more courtroom stuff? Sure. Absolutely. But do I like that it's there thematically? Yes. I think it makes it more interesting. Um, You know, I, the satanic panic stuff. Do I think this movie is taking some sort of like religious right stand? No, I don't. I think that's a crazy thing to accuse this movie of, especially when like, it's it's a big budget Hollywood horror movie. Like, yeah, it it's heteronormative. Okay, cool. So is every other giant Hollywood oh, movie no, you've no, ever no, no, seen. No, 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 no. Okay, the idea behind uh, 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 something being heteronormative is the fact that it is pushing the idea of uh, 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 you know that that the quote unquote the traditional family structure. Right. I had this argument with somebody you know who who insisted that the movie was heteronormative. No, it's just 
because a movie presents. I, I spoke out of turn. I apologize. No, 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 no. You're fine. It just it, it 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 riled me up from previous conversation. I'm sorry, but just because a movie presents a quote unquote like nuclear family setup, that doesn't mean it's pushing it. It doesn't mean it's agenda driven. Uh, some of the takes I saw on this fucking movie in the series as a it's whole crazy, just does my yeah. fucking head in. Um, it's, it's crazy, and I don't agree with them. And and look, it it's okay. Like I get it. Not everyone's gonna like every movie, but like to take some sort of weird stand on the Conjuring Part Three is a weird way to go. Um, and it's yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun, really good, really good time at the movies. Yeah, I have no problems with this movie. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I liked it a lot. I, I love the first two. Um, the extended Conjuring universe is a bit hit and miss with me. Uh, the first yeah. Annabelle is kind of blah. The Nun I do not like at all, even though it obviously was trying for sort of a hammer aesthetic. I think the two Annabelle sequels are, especially that third one, I think they're just so much fun. Like... Uh, both the the Sandberg one and the uh, whoever directed the third one, who I thought did it. I like the yeah. second Annabelle. The second Annabelle, I think, is like real good stuff. That that's a great movie. But this one, I I will say that I like you said this one was more focused. I think it was simply because the and I like this one because it made the Warrens the lead characters. And it gave them a purpose and a drive that they haven't had in the previous movies. They haven't. I, I love the Warrens in the previous movies. I love the performances. I love Vera Farmiga. I love Patrick Wilson. But those characters are, you know, they're not the leads in the first two movies. And they're kind of, I hate to say it, for stretches of each of those movies, they're kind of passive. Yeah. You know, like Especially things, in the second one. Yeah, I things don't know. happen I, to I them. like. Yeah. Until they need to step up and do, you know, which is, you know, I don't know. That's a longer conversation about the first two movies, which again, Aha, I like. Yeah. But... No, I, I, dude, I am so there with you. And I, the other thing I liked was like, I liked giving Patrick Wilson sort of like something to hold him back a little bit. Like I liked the heart attack element and him being hindered throughout the film. I thought that was like a really great <laughs> element. It did, but at the same time, it also felt a little bit like a retread of The Conjuring 2 in that regard, where it's all about Lorraine looking out for Ed and not wanting him to push himself too much. Because, you know, in the second movie, there's the looming death that she's been seeing. In this one, it's whether or not his heart's going to give out. I, it wasn't enough to ruin it for me, but it just felt like, you know, the, the first movie was the opposite, right? Like, Lorraine is the one who is headed into danger, and Ed is the guy right. who has to pull her yeah. back from the brink. In the second yeah. one, they reversed that, and then in the third one, you know, I could have been fine without it entirely, but instead it was kind of like, well, we're just going to do that again, you know, which is fine. Well, I, it think, I think for, for me, me and, and this might be uh, controversial, but I think for me, like, I agree, it was it was definitely all of its derivative. The whole fucking movie's derivative. You know what I mean? Like, I, if I'm going to hold it accountable for being derivative, then I'm not going to like any of it. But the other piece of it is, I thought, yes, even though it was done in the second film, I thought it was done better here. I thought I thought this was a better execution of the same idea. So That's therefore, right. I liked it more here. Because, like, impending death is one thing, but in this one, it's like he has a real condition, something that is tangible, that's trackable from the very opening scene, um, that he requires actual medication. This isn't some weird spiritual psychic problem. 
This is a, you know, a real world issue that he cannot avoid. He cannot escape. Um, and I liked how it came to fruition in a really subtle way at the end. I thought that was really special and and a, a cool, emotional, very real and human uh, a, a way of dealing with how she looks out for him. Um, yeah, that, the way, that the way it was more off. impactful than like a psychic thing. Like it, it felt more like a real couple would do this. Like it, th- they felt more like real people to me in this movie than in part two. Um, and yeah, like part two has him singing Elvis. That's great. I love that scene, but like fucking like, this is a better, they're better characters in this movie. I don't know. I, I, I cared more about them in this film than I ever have before. And it blows my mind that people watch this movie and don't have the same experience. I just don't get it. But I, I get that everyone's different. And like, I have no problem. I think my issue is like the vitriol you get for liking something sometimes yeah. is not the like, but we don't feel that way for people who don't like it. Like, I'm not like, ah, oh, screw you guys. The only reason I'm defensive is because so many people are like, this movie's bad and you're dumb if you like it. And it's like, okay, well, well, That's not only not that, but, you helpful. know, potentially, potentially you are a bad person for liking in the first place. Right, because, right. Because right. the Warrens were frauds and uh, blah, 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 blah. It's that same fucking thing we've heard since 2013 when the first movie came out. Every time one of these movies comes out, you get somebody coming out of the woodwork saying, uh, you know, uh, uh, but the Warrens were frauds. They were grifters. They were blah, 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 blah. And it's like, OK, great. Could you point me to evidence? Well, there's an article where somebody accused them. It's like evidence. Yeah, but. But they said, like people have said that they, you know, if you look at it traditionally, like paranormal experts, you know, they do take evidence, evidence though. How about evidence? Well, like, yeah, but but but, honestly, but but I don't I don't believe in God, and they did. Therefore, okay, evidence though. Can you can back it up? Maybe that they were you know you know you're charging them with being frauds and grifters and bad people. Just just get you know what? I'll meet you more than halfway. Give me one solid thing crickets actually well, I, more, more often than not not crickets instead they just continue <laughs> raging blindly that's they just get mad well and and look i don't have any love at all for the actual warrens because these movies aren't fucking about them i'm sorry <laughs> like they are but they aren't these are characters these are fictional characters in a fictional world nobody thinks this shit is true <laughs> nobody thinks that these that these people presided over actual exorcisms no one believes that shit that's crazy like we all like it because it's a fun movie Based on some random books these liars wrote. Like, I don't I don't care about those people. I don't think they were telling the truth. And sure, they probably were grifters to make money off of that shit. Like, who gives a shit? Like, if they were terrible people, who cares? These are random movies that have nothing to do with them other than taking the lies they said and making them entertaining, which is fine. I don't know. I don't get why that's bad. No, I don't. I don't don't either. I I mean, I'm drunk. I'm sorry, guys. Like this is unfiltered me, but like, why can't we just have fun with these movies? (laughs) I agree with you on that. But I, I guess the thing that like sort of rankles with me is that you're hundred percent right. Like on that front, I don't know why you would hold that against a fucking movie, but people are going to. But even beyond that, like people are using these movies as springboards to, you know, launch attacks against the Warrens. And to me, because they were real people, it does 
make me bristle a little bit. Do okay, Paul. Do do I believe that the Warrens actually fought a demonic nun and that they presided over it? And they they were essentially like superheroes who who ran around and like knocked down supernatural like possessions and demonic shit. No, no, I don't. No. But but here's the thing. Like, do I believe that you know paranormal enthusiasts? Do I believe that? Um, uh, you know, psychics and clairvoyants, do I believe that those people offer comfort to people for admittedly sometimes a price? And here's the thing. It's also a matter of public record that in some cases they actually donated the money that they made off of like certain books and stuff to charities and back to the families. So, you know, the fact that I think people are equating the notion that they don't believe that any of this stuff happened, you know, the the way it was purported, which is fine. I don't think that necessarily equals, hey, these were bad people, they were grifters, they were preying upon people. Like, I, I think that's too far of a leap to make with no fucking evidence to back it up. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, when the first movie came out, somebody asked Vera Farmiga, who had spent a lot of time with uh, Lorraine Warren, she was like, you know, they asked Vera Farmiga if she believed in all of that, you know, the, the, the stuff, the nature of the movie and whatnot. And she said, after spending time with Lorraine Warren, she was like, do I believe in it? No, but the important thing is, is that I believe she believes it, you know? And to me, that says everything that I need to know about those people. And so I don't know. I just get exhausted with it all. Like somebody finds a fucking, like they dust that same thing off every movie. Anytime another installment uh, in this flagship franchise comes out, another conjuring movie, I, I have to see on Twitter people going on and on and on and on, you know, trying to raise these objections and having a conversation that will never have any resolution whatsoever. Yeah. So it's just, it annoys the piss out of yeah. me. Yeah. No, I get that. So, no, I mean, ultimately what it boils down to is in a franchise like this, you're never going to please everybody. Every entry is going to have its its fans and its naysayers. This was the first major Conjuring film that Juan didn't direct. It was inevitable that people were going to turn on it. That's how I feel. I feel like people are kind of going into it with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder going, this is the one that we can shit on because that's more entertaining than liking it. That's kind of how I feel. So okay. I'm sorry, internet. That, <laughs> I, I think this is just as good as most of these other movies that we typically say are at least fine. Um, and, and to have such vitriol towards it is crazy to me. And to say that it's, a mess of a movie after watching like the other 10 conjuring movies, which are all messes for the most part. Um, we might like them. They might be likable messes, but they're kind of messes uh, is, is very telling of, of, you know, what we're willing to forgive and, and what we're deciding to hold accountable to. So I think it is for me, this was right. one of the better ones. You know, I, I and I guess I haven't talked about the movie that much so much as the controversy. I will just say yeah, that, we didn't that, really talk that, about that, you know, I no, I did really like the movie. I thought it was fantastic for anyone out there who hasn't seen it yet. It is based on an actual a real murder case. You can look it up. The uh, the Arnie Cheyenne Johnson murder trial in which, um, you know, demonic possession was used for the first time in the history of the U.S., as a defense for a, uh, you know, somebody on trial for murder. 
And of course, the Warrens figure into it. Uh, you know, they they try and suss out the cause of the demonic possession, and you know, the story that's told is the story that's told. Uh, it is interesting, and in then it makes the Warrens the lead characters. It's kind of a detective story in a way, which I think is kind of cool. The villain yeah. is really striking, really wonderful. Uh, the set pieces are pretty great. Are they as good as the best set pieces in the previous two movies? No, but they're a damn sight better than I expected them to be, considering it came from the director of the sort of tenuously connected conjuring verse movie, uh, the curse of La Llorona, which is one of the few movies that I've ever walked out on. I walked out 45 minutes in that movie. I was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this film. Like it wasn't, it wasn't wow. even offensively terrible. It was just so damn dull, but the guy acquitted himself nicely with this one because I do think this conjuring film is quite good. It's on HBO max. It's free for subscribers, or you can catch it on the big screen. And to that point, Paul, going back to what you said, you know, with this being the one movie that people would turn on, I think it is, it is kind of telling in a way. It shows me something. It shows, you know, when when we all get wrapped up on horror Twitter, I, I think we land in this sort of echo chamber and we become convinced that these opinions that swirl about are the full conversation. And you're right. Going from what horror Twitter said this weekend, this movie you know, it was probably not going to be that big. There were several people who were like, you know, I'm done with this franchise. I'm not even going to watch it. Well, I watched it, but it's terrible. I'm not going to recommend it to my friends, blah, 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 blah. This movie for being, you know, coming at the tail end of a pandemic when, you know, uh, uh, theaters are still, you know, stretching and yawning and waking up, uh, did gangbusters over the weekend and did great. Mainstream audiences flocked to see this movie, and there are probably going to be even more sequels and spinoffs and whatnot. So it serves as a reminder that horror Twitter is not necessarily the be-all, end-all when it comes to the audiences that these movies can command. Right. And, like, as someone who, you know, whether they like it or not, is a part of horror Twitter... (laughs) I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I thought it was great. I don't know. I mean, I it ended, and I looked at my wife, who watched it with me, and she loved it, too. I was like, was that not a really good movie? And she was like, yeah. I was like, what What the fuck? Like, why? I don't know. It was just frustrating, because I kind of... And, and honestly, maybe going into it, like, my expectations had been lowered, admittedly, like, because everyone was like, oh, it's not good. I mean, I know you liked it, so I was like, okay, well... I I will probably like this because I generally agree with you, but my my expectations have been tempered a bit. And also, admittedly, I'm not the biggest Conjuring guy. I, I love the first one. I like the second Annabelle, and that's kind of it for me. Like, all the other ones are sort of okay that I've seen. Um, I, I don't love any other movies in that whole franchise. So I was kind of like, well, if, if I like it, it'll be a success. <laughs> So to walk away from it feeling like this is one of the better entries is, is how, I mean, it would be top three for me um, out of all of them. So I, I, I'm just dumbfounded by the reaction. So I, I wonder, I kind of feel like in 10 years, this might be one of those ones that gets reevaluated. I, I, I oh, think yeah. it might be a movie that is coming at a time where people have a chip on their shoulder about certain things uh, the the change with the director, people seeing it home instead of a theater. I, I do think that all factors in. Hello. Hello. You disappeared for a minute. 
Oh, sorry. No, I, I heard you all the way up until uh, I thought was the end of your thought, but then you went dark. Okay. So going to cut all this out. Um, <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe I'll leave it in just for that. Yeah, it's uh, it's but no, you're right, man. And I, yeah, I overall, I did like the movie. And it's funny. Here's the thing, man. Like I, I watched it at home. I watched it on HBO Max. I actually stayed up until it became available after 3 a.m. Thursday night, Friday morning. Uh, just because I was so jazzed to watch it because I'm a night owl typically anyway. Um, but that said, like I have seen every single fucking conjuring movie on the big screen and I'm not going to make an exception with this one. So now that I've seen it at home, I will be traveling to see it on the big screen too, just because, uh, so, you know, and plus I want to throw money in its coffers. You know, I, I want to see more of these movies. I want to support it. And like you, I, I had a, an absolute blast with it. Uh, my rankings would be different, but it's still high up there for me. Very cool. And with all that said, let's go ahead and taste some Dracula blood, Paul. All right, I'm ready to drink some uh, some of Dracula's weird powder blood. Paul, whatever <laughs> you do, you don't need to drink anything anymore, Chief. I and some water, maybe some coffee. Yeah, I mean, you could toss it my way. I have several beers in front of me, and I'm I don't think I'm anywhere near stopping. But hey, <laughs> let's do it. Let's see if we make it to the end of this movie. All right, man. I, yeah, it's, this is, I'm a little afraid. (laughs) It's going to be, we're going to get through it together. All right, you ready? I apologize to the listeners in advance. I'll tell you what, folks out there, whether you're watching this on VHS, DVD, or Blu-ray, let's go ahead and skip past all of the uh, FBI warning bullshit. Let's get to uh, 0000 on the time code here. Right on the very first black frame, we're going to count down from five and on play. We're all going to press play and we're going to do this commentary together. Okay, Paul, you ready? Ready. Listeners out there probably aren't even doing this and are listening to this as a normal podcast. You ready? Ready, Jinx. Okay, let's do the countdown here. Do that every time. Give the audience voice from here on out. Sorry, go ahead. We can't wait to hear this train wreck. (laughs) Um, Why do they? Why do they sound like Mickey Mouse? They like do a weird little like haha at the end. <laughs> uh, <laughs> why am I loopy? I'm not drinking. Um, right. <laughs> wow, we're never recovering from this and we haven't even started. Okay, everyone, here in five, four, three, two, one, and play. All right, Warner Brothers presents Paul. I got to tell you. Frame one, we have a carriage traveling through the woods. I'm uh, I'm rock hard already. So uh... <laughs> it's a true hammer film. We don't get like a like a title card. We don't get like a Warner Brothers seven arts or anything. We we just go right into the movie. That's right. Look at that that is a beautiful shot. I I love it that is. about this movie. It is it is a damn good looking film. Except for wait for it five four three two. One, you gotta love that rear screen projection in the back. Oh, oh my yeah. god, it's classic! It's classic. Yeah, I, it, the movie in general looks pretty good, um, considering like what it was dealing with at the time. I mean, we are now squarely in the uh, the the final years of Hammer's run. <laughs> yeah, we're we're in the decline, which is weird because you know what. There are aspects of this movie, like production design-wise, scope-wise, like it, it it looks like a bigger Hammer film. But I think 
and tell me if I'm wrong about this, I, I would attribute that to the fact that because they were on the decline, they were putting everything they had, uh, you know, not only their own money, but what money they could uh, glean from Warner Seven Arts into their Dracula films because those were the big money makers for them. So, of course, they were going to give it everything they had. Yes. Yeah. Dracula is what people wanted. That, that, that was the only thing that was really giving them money at this point. Um, but they were also sort of trying to cut corners and expand and, and, and do something different. Well, and this movie is really interesting too. Well, first off, is this Peter Sesdy's first hammer film? I think it is. Yes. Yes. He, he would... did like Countess Dracula and, um, uh, hands of the Ripper. Hands of the Ripper. Yeah. 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 Uh, which I think, uh, is coming out on that, um, imprint set. I'm really excited about that set. They're doing like a an early 70s hammer set, which I did finally buy an imprint movie. I don't know if I told you. I bought uh, Breakdown, the Kurt Russell. Now, is that a U.S. Uh, label? No, it's an Australian label, um, which oh, is but very, it, but very fancy. But it's an I've Australian been, label, like, but you waiting. can play them, right? Yeah, the US, a like... lot of them are region free. Yeah, most of them I are region free. I picked up... Uh... I picked up Hard Eight on the imprint label. Yeah, 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 yeah. I missed, I, I missed out. I missed out on Hard Eight. Is that I out regret, of print? I regret to say, yeah, I, I, it is. Yeah, no, I, I, I might. You're such a I might try to. Fan. I know, I know. Yeah, it, it, it hurt me because I, I didn't realize how limited those were, and so I was like, oh, I'll get it eventually. And then I went to buy it, and it's now like you know, it's like two hundred dollars or something, and I'm like, oh fuck, but I'll. I'll try to find it at a reasonable cost at some point. I'd pay like 40 bucks for it if I could find it, you know, 40 or 50 bucks. But um, I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't bought anything from them, uh, but I pre-ordered that hammer set and I bought a breakdown, which breakdown's an amazing movie. By yes, the way. it is. And um, if they're limited, I need to go ahead and be, I guess, snapping this shit up. Yeah, I, I apologize. I got way off topic, like no, right no, at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> no, you're good. Although I will say while we're talking, I do love the fact that we start this tale before the end of the last film. And we have this Agreed. great prologue that yeah. sort of dovetails with the events of the previous films. And I just I think that's such a neat way to bring us back into this world. I agree. And 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 again, we talked about this last time, but this is another one of those things that makes me feel like this is very much a proto slasher franchise because this is the kind of thing a slasher would do like a modern day slasher franchise where it's like, this is a very saw thing. <laughs> this is very saw to, to kind of like begin in a, in a different place with different characters and trick you into thinking it's, a subsequent event and then re you know, sort of making you realize, Oh, this is actually taking place during a different movie you watched. Paul, I just want to point out before we get to the main title here, a lot of people don't talk about the fact that this production was brave enough to bring to the screen. Bram Stoker's original suggestion that count Dracula's blood was in fact, strawberry curd. It's, it's, it's shocking that this is the first time we've seen that. <laughs> I, I I like that it turns into like a weird powder. Personally, I think that's kind of fucking bizarre. And I, I it's it's weird that like this is the first time we've really seen that happen, given we've seen Dracula die like multiple times before. Um, 
but I like the idea of somebody. I I almost think like there's a lot of things you could do with the idea of somebody like taking Dracula's personal effects and you know sort of spreading them about. I almost wish we got like a cursed objects trilogy, like sort of an Amneville thing with oh, this, where yeah. it's like one movie for each object. Like one movie follows his cloak, one movie follows his you know necklace, one movie follows the bl- vial of blood. I think that would have been a cool. Fuck. That's a great like, movie. Yeah, like a cool Great sort of idea. way to go in different directions with it. Um, like the first time I saw that, I was like, "Oh, you could do like a lot of really interesting things with that." Uh, but I, I, I still, I still think it's really sort of fun and interesting way of kind of doing a Dracula sequel um, and jumping right, this, ahead a little bit. This motherfucker! Oh yeah, is there a more despicable son of a bitch than Hargit in this movie? Hmm. In 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 uh, in in the, in the yeah all probably not. <laughs> I will say also on screen here we have the lovely Linda Hayden who had a big year in 1970. Uh, she was 17 at the time. That year saw the release of this movie, and she was also in another horror classic called The Blood on Satan's Claw, which was a uh, Tygon production. And folks listening out there, if you have not seen The Blood on Satan's Claw. It is a folk horror masterpiece that I feel like not too many people, it feels like not enough people talk about it and maybe not enough people have seen it. I believe Severin put it out on Blu-ray. Give that movie a look. It is superb. I need to, I haven't seen it. I need to watch it. Yeah, I, I need to get, is the Severin Blu-ray still available or no? Did it sell through? I got, that's a great question. Honestly, I do not know. There was that weird thing last year where, I, I, I want to say they put it out in November of 2019 with like this fucking limited edition slipcover thing. Why it's limited, I, that's a whole other conversation, whatever. But anyway, it was out of print. Then they brought it back into print with the slipcover during their um, uh, that, that sale at the beginning of last summer, which uh, went so very well. Um, and I actually managed to get a copy that well, that way. Um, I don't know if it's still available. I have to imagine if it is, it's without the slipcover, which, um, it is funny. I don't know if a lot of collectors out there know this, but the movie will still play fine without the slipcover. It's crazy, but no way it dude, it, I, it blew me away. Um, but yeah, you just <laughs> pop it right into the player. You press play, boom, movie, no slipcover needed. <laughs> no, well, I, I, yeah, I, I should have bought it when I had the chance. I just, I don't know why I didn't. I, for whatever reason, I, I missed out. But what the hell, Paul? You buy everything. What's going on? Here? I know. I, I, yeah, I know. I do buy everything. It's a real problem. I got my vinegar oh, syndrome box today, and it had like a thousand movies in. It. I was really excited. That's great. Rub it in, Paul. That's, uh, that's yeah. cool. It's just, I, I, uh, uh, I haven't gotten mine I, yet. Yeah, I bitch about them so much online. No, I, I'm sorry. I don't bitch about vinegar syndrome. I was bitching vinegar about vinegar syndrome is amazing. No, they really are. I'm not knocking vinegar syndrome. I was knocking another company that I was uh, pissing and moaning about online. Although it is worth noting uh, that, like, <laughs> two hours after, I'm not saying there's a connection, but I am saying that two hours after I pissed and moaned about one company not sending my me my shit like two weeks after the release date even though i had pre-ordered it a month in advance uh my my fucking order went out and i got it like two there days you go. so so i'm happy you know i got the uh 
I'm not going to say who, but it's, you know, I have that big box set now and it's great. And they do a great job putting stuff like that together. I just wish they had. It's a, it's a beautiful box set. Agreed. It is. It is perfect. So, so no, this movie. <laughs> no, I was just going to say real quick. Vinegar Syndrome is awesome. I did put in that order. I cannot wait to get it because uh, I've been wanting to watch the Scanner Cop movies for a while. And I've been wanting to see Six String Samurai since I was a teenager. But that's just one of those movies that kept slipping by. And I got to imagine the only reason is because it was meant for me to see it in 4K for the first time. Yeah, I've never seen it. I'm really excited. That's uh, probably one of the first things I'm going to put in. Um, what what all did you order from the Vinegar Syndrome sale? Not much. I ordered uh, the Scanner Cop set. I ordered Six String Samurai, the big 4K set. And I ordered yeah. a movie called Olivia, which Brian Sauer oh, yeah, yeah. as a pairing with... Uh, it was on the... I want to say it was the second half of uh, Pure Cinema's uh, David Lynch podcast and that was brian sowers pairing with lost highway and lost highway is pretty much one of my favorite movies ever it's in my own personal top 10 so uh, just him describing this movie olivia uh kind of perked my ears up and i thought hey i need to watch that so funny thing paul um i was super tired not drinking i promise uh i was super tired when i put in my severn order Ordered all three of those, and then a couple of days later, there was kind of like that ticking clock thing that was happening on Twitter where every five minutes people were saying, like, the Vinegar Syndrome sale is going to end. You better get your orders in. Did you know it's going to end soon? Order, mm-hmm. order, order. And I was like, oh, shit, right. I really need to move uh, order that movie Olivia. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and tag that on because they have that great option. Like, if you want to add stuff later, you can add it to an existing order. So I ordered Olivia and added that to my order, not realizing that I had already ordered it. So I'm going to have a second copy of Olivia. <laughs> I'm going to like raffle off or send to a listener or something. But uh, That's funny. Yeah, but well, I, I, you know, I'm a little hurt because I've been singing Olivia's praises for like a year. And I guess it took Brian Sauer for you to, to perk up because I, I was definitely talking about this movie a long no. time ago. No, indeed, no. yes. No. Uh, you can check check my receipts on Twitter. You can search Olivia and Paul is great, and you'll find. No, I love Olivia. Um, oh, I wait, watched it. it. On, it was on Twitter. Twas. Oh, I have you muted. Oh, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> no, o- Olivia is like an early '80s De Palma esque exercise in like like. D- introspective voyeurism and odd sexuality and the ramifications of unresolved trauma. It's, it's, it's a great movie. I, I was blown away by Olivia. Um, you know, a lot of times vinegar syndrome movies are fun. Um, but this was one of the ones that was like a truly great film. Uh, and I, I loved it. So yeah, I, I think that was a great choice. Uh, I'm, I haven't listened to that episode yet, but I agree with Brian. Would you say <laughs> that uh, that Olivia is as violent and sleazy as it is deeply felt and introspective? An early 80s De Palma-esque exercise in voyeurism, sexuality, and the ramifications. That's what I just said. You're a just recent favorite, my words. A recent favorite of yours? You're reading um, my Twitter. From Ha-ha, I was right. Extensive catalog <laughs> I did tweet and one worth it. seeking out. 
tweeted it, Paul. Okay, being fair, you tweeted this in May of 2020. I don't know if you remember. Okay, well, well that's we, a long we were, time ago. We were that going was a long in, time ago. It was like a year ago. We were going into a pandemic. I'm sorry, things were a little May off. of 2020. I may of 2000. That's over a year ago. Things were a little stressful. <laughs> I was a little stressed. All right. And stressed. yet, and yet, it took. Brian no it's fine I understand I I you know what if there was anyone I was going to listen to about movies it would be Brian Sauer I agree he's amazing um but at least it shows that I wasn't bullshitting you (laughs) okay Paul I just want to point out here we have Felix the brothel owner who must be some relation to the bartender from the wicker man you know maybe well not really, but maybe like his flamboyant grandfather. I don't know. But uh, I, I swear <laughs> there's got to be – there is some DNA shared between this character and Frank and Furter. Like you can't tell me that Tim oh, Curry no. couldn't have murdered this role, even though this guy is fantastic. Absolutely right. And I do love uh, the lighting in this scene. Um, it's just – yeah, the colors are really interesting. The the smoke um, – I love the sort of the seriousness of the men who are sort of there to attempt to get their kicks, but you can tell it's all sort of wearing thin. Um, This is a movie to me that really, man, we haven't talked a lot about this movie yet. Um, But like a lot of these films are an indictment of the aristocracy, right? Of the, of the wealthy class, um, and, and how they sort of subjugate those around them. Um, and this movie to me really represents kind of taking that to the next level because now you have these characters who are so just bored and unfulfilled by that life that they're, they're trying to take that exploitation to the next level. And the further they push it, the less, enjoyment they're getting out of it and the farther away they're getting from like like that human side of themselves which is what opens them up to exposing themselves to a creature like dracula um but this movie or this sequence i find really entertaining because it's it's something a little bit more exotic and bizarre for a hammer film of this ilk um that we normally get and it just kind of sets the stage for what's going to kind of happen after this isn't enough. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And these guys, you know, in a weird way, it almost reminds me of the, uh, <laughs> you remember Hostel? Remember that great actor who appears in like, uh, it's near the end of the second act where, uh, I think the Paxton character runs into this businessman guy who basically talks essentially like that. Like, He's seen it all. He's done it all. He's looking for that next high. And, you know, as in that film, ultimately, there is no subtext to this whatsoever. Um, (laughs) I almost wish this were the snake dancer from um, uh, uh, the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. I love uh, the guy just holding like a half eaten banana. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? And it looks gross as hell. But no, I, uh, you're right. Like this movie is definitely like, you know, we're going into the seventies. This is very anti-establishment. You know, uh, these guys are all, you know, just the worst. We also have like, is that Paul remind me, is that the first pair of bare breasts we've seen in hammer? 
Yeah, which originally was edited out because this movie was released as what was essentially PG at the time. That that had to be put back in much later. So, like, when people first saw this film, the, the nudity wasn't a part of it, but it was intended to be. You were talking about the lighting in this scene and the way it's shot, the way that it's cut, the energy of the scene, the performances. Like, I, I got to say, like, Peter Sasty is a director. He brings a real flair to this material. He does. It's, yeah. it's, it, I mean, it's stylish, but it's not overly theatrical. I, again, I think no. it has real energy to it at times. I think there's a real nastiness to it that we haven't really seen you know, in Hammer uh, like this, you know, up until this point. I think, yeah, I mean, part of that is by virtue of the film's plot and its settings, sure. But I think it's also down to that guy's sensibilities. You know, he's not he's not quite as seemingly repressed as his predecessor, the predecessors, you know, the, the filmmakers who uh, came before, though some of that was surely due to the censors, I think, starting to loosen up at, at this point in Hammer's history. But I, I just, this movie impresses the hell out of me. I got to say, you know, I... And we've talked about this before, like I'm not the biggest fan of the Dracula franchise and, you know, some of the later sequels I I tended to shrug at. But revisiting this movie, I, I have a newfound appreciation for it. And I think it's actually really damn good. And I think it's one of the best Dracula sequels. I would put it up there with, you know, I mean, you have Brides, of course, and, you know, horror below that. But beyond that, I would I think this is probably my third favorite in the entire the entire bunch now. Well, yeah, and I think it it well to your point it has a liveliness to it that it's not afraid to embrace the garish in a way that the other movies typically avoided. Like it I mean, this is so it's borderline camp at times, but it handles it in a way that that doesn't subvert sort of like the seriousness uh woven into the narrative. Plus, similar to Brides, this was a movie that was written to be without Christopher Lee. Like, the intention of this film was to not have Lee in it. Um, and is... I think that almost frees it up, kind of. I think that's that's one of the reasons Brides is so good, is that it it's not beholden to the Dracula character, but it's dealing with a lot of the thematics that Dracula would deal with in a a bigger way because it has to, because it's not, it doesn't have Dracula. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and I kind of, it's, it's a shame in a way that Ralph Bates wasn't given the opportunity to be the Dracula of the movie as he was sort of intended. Um, because I think he would have done a really good job. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, to, to dive into that for a second, because I, I was doing a little bit of reading, uh, again, I, I dove into the Hearn Barnes book, and there is some really interesting history behind this one. Um, I read that uh, Hammer director Freddie Francis, his son Kevin, wrote an unsolicited screenplay called Dracula's Feast of Blood. And uh, it was reviewed at Hammer by one Brian Lawrence and James Carreras. And uh, it was ultimately dismissed. Like, they, they sort of just, you know, roundly scoffed at it and tossed it in the bin and then taste the blood of dracula was then put on the books with christopher lee meant to be starring and the thing is is that <laughs> christopher lee who wasn't really being paid all that well by hammer learned that he was a star in america which is crazy to think that something like that could be kept from him. But, you know, back yeah. in the day, it was. No no internet. <laughs> no, no exactly. Exactly, yeah. 
But he, he learned that he was a star, and he, you know, which is a cruel thing for a couple of reasons to keep from a man. But he learned that the uh, the Dracula movies were doing very, very well there. So he demanded payment that was, you know, befitting a star of his stature, understandably. And and I love this. Imagine this in Christopher Lee's voice. He apparently told the Hammerheads that if they didn't have any money, they could simply share a percentage of the distributor's gross, like the American distributor's gross with him. And of course, and we've talked about the dodginess of Hammer, you know, at a certain level before, but Hammer wouldn't hear of it. So you're right. Like what you mentioned, they they designed Taste to be a vehicle for a new Dracula in Ralph Bates. And apparently Bates had just come off of playing um, Caligula in a television series called The Caesars. And apparently that impressed, uh, you know, Carreras and company enough that they thought that this was going to be their guy. You know, the idea was that Bates would play a Lord Courtney, uh, who later became Lord Courtley in the film. Uh, much as in the film, he would drink the blood of Dracula, and then he would become Dracula. He would become possessed by Dracula while still looking like Lord Courtney. So Bates would play Dracula in the series, you know, in the film and presumably in the series from this point forward. And the thing is, is that the American distributor, uh, you know, Warren Seven Arts, they caught wind of this. And immediately yeah. slapped down that possibility. They they reminded Hammer that they had been funded with the understanding that Lee would be the star. You know, and one assumes Hammer did a you know little groveling and managed to up Lee's pay. So, you know, the star returned to what had become his signature franchise. And uh, so here's the interesting thing: John Elder rewrote the script to bring Lee back into the film while providing a. Uh, you know, kind of a speedy exit for Bates. And here's the, okay. So before I get to the really interesting thing, uh, just a sidebar on Bates, Bates was intended to be the star of the film, possibly the rest of the films in the series. And then this man was relegated to only filming for five days in the bit part of courtly on top of that. After this, he replaced Peter Cushing as Frankenstein for horror Frankenstein. <laughs> that movie underperformed and he was replaced by Cushing who returned to the role for one final film. Here is a man who would have been Mr. Hammer. He would have been Dracula and Frankenstein both. And he ultimately wound up just doing a mere, um, uh, like four pictures with them. So, uh, and I'll get back to Ralph Bates here in a minute because I think he's absolutely wonderful, but we'll set Mr. Bates aside for a second. And okay. So back to Kevin Francis. Turns out that Freddie Francis's son, after he had turned in that script, after his script was rejected, after Taste the Blood of Dracula was in the can, fully filmed, ready to go out into the world, somebody clued him into the fact that a couple of scenes from his screenplay were appropriated for this film. And he later stated in an interview he didn't believe that it was John Elder who lifted the scenes, but somebody else in Hammer, and who knows who that would have been. But apparently he was ultimately paid handsomely in order for Taste of Blood of Dracula to even be released. Uh, because he very well, apparently he could have put a stop to it or at least given them all sorts of hell. And, uh, you know, he 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 was paid a good sum of money to uh, to sort of, you know, uh, uh, bug off, as it were. So, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of love that story in a way. It's a very interesting kind of backstory for a movie like this, I think. But it's also... You know, it's kind of a fascinating window into what must have been going on with that company at the time that they would even try that in the first place. One, but two, you know, the fact that they built an entire plan and groomed an actor with this 
big design for what they were going to do with him based solely on the fact that they weren't willing to pay their star, the man who arguably had gotten them to the point they were, or at least helped considerably. They weren't willing to pay him what he was worth. And uh, I don't know. I felt like karma bit them on the ass for it, but it's kind of a shame that Bates was swept up in that and unfortunately was underserved by it as a result. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, you said it all really well. You covered pretty much all the bases, <laughs> but it, it's, it's funny to me that hammer consistently tried to like get one over on their American distribution partners. <laughs> that was like a really common thread where hammer knew that like the reason Warner was willing to distribute their movies was because it was like, well, every other year they're going to get a Christopher Lee Dracula vehicle. They also knew that if the movie had Dracula in the title, they probably wouldn't question it too much and just put it out. What they underestimated was the fact that the studio would like the level to which they would allow hammer to just do whatever it was they were doing without looking into it. Um, because yeah, once they specifically inquired about the the cast and they realized Christopher Lee was not listed, they're like, Well, we we are flat out not going to release this in the US if you don't put Lee in it. And that makes me wonder, you know, how much they ended up paying Lee for this movie because I because as you said, like he, he had them over a barrel. And also Lee was so vocal at this point about just being completely uninterested in pursuing more movies with that character. He was just so unhappy with what those movies were. Now, granted he went on to do several more. So maybe, maybe some of it was a bit of hot air, (laughs) you know, like, like he wanted to sort of like protest a little bit too much. <laughs> well, but um, I, I, I think you were right the first time though, because apparently he had written to his fan club, like in a newsletter, letting them know that he was doing another Dracula movie uh, in Taste of Blood. And uh, but it's funny, like I can't remember the exact quote, but he was very dismissive of it, even though the movie hadn't yet come out. So you know, here was an actor telling his fan club, "Yes, I'm doing another one of these fucking movies." You know, uh, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, which is, <laughs> I I just think he could. And here's the thing: I look, Christopher Lee is brilliant. Like he's a marvelous oh, actor, yeah. Yeah. but even he and I think he was a complete professional. I think he he showed up. He did his job as well as it needed to be done. But I think you can read in his performance in the previous film, in this film, in the films to come, for the most part, he seems quite bored with it all. Like, even the moments in the movie, like, he's Christopher Lee, and he has that voice, and he cuts a striking figure. And really, that's all the movies really need from him in the first place, sure. But in his performance, I see a man who doesn't really care to be there, you know, Uh, and it's because the material isn't meeting, you know, his his expectation, his standard. And it's really not challenging him in any way. I mean, the first time we see him in this movie, other than the prologue, you know, when he's finally, um, you know, risen, as it were, from uh, Courtley's ashes, I forget the line, but he sort of booms out, you know, they destroyed my servant. 
they shall be destroyed. You can almost see him shrugging and sighing as soon as they call cut on scenes like that. Like that's what they, those are the lines that they gave the man to speak. And you just see him like, you know, wither a bit under some of this dialogue. And it's just, it's kind of sad to me that you had one of the best actors to have ever played the role before or since. And yet you, you weren't bringing him your best. You weren't bringing him, you weren't challenging him in a way, you know, and uh, you weren't allowing him to, you weren't letting him do what he wanted to do, which was to play the fucking character from the book. He had to go to Jess Franco to do that. And Franco didn't have the budget or, you know, maybe the aesthetic, you know, maybe the, the abilities, maybe that's too mean, but he, he was no Terrence Fisher as it were, you know, could you imagine Fisher and Lee tackling an honest adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel? Like, Holy shit. Oh yeah. No, that would have been amazing. Um, but instead I just feel like movies fail him a bit. And I think you can read that in his performances and I'm not knocking Lee for that. I'm sympathizing with him for it. Well, and, and yeah, this might be, I won't say this the right way. I, I think that's kind of the difference between Lee and Cushing is I feel like Peter Cushing always showed up, you know, like Peter Cushing was a lot like Vincent price where no matter what the movie was, no matter what was going on, like they gave it 110%. Christopher Lee, when he wasn't into something, he gave it like 60%. But do you not feel that that Cushing was often far better served with the material he was given than Lee? Because I don't know that I've seen a single performance from Cushing that one, wasn't amazing, sure, but two was written or rather as underwritten as the stuff that Lee had to do in the latter half of the series. Like I true because, because Frankenstein versus Dracula are two totally different things. They're apples and oranges Um, because when, you know, in a Frankenstein movie, Cushing really was the star in a Dracula movie. Lee was not the star. I mean, he was like, he was the draw he's on the poster, but like, you know, we're, we're, half an hour into this movie we haven't seen christopher lee you know what i mean like he's not and when he does show up he's he's a secondary character he's a background character he's a he's a bit like freddy krueger in some ways uh only without the um i don't know the 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 energy (laughs) the energy the quips what a beautiful yeah right and but but that's the thing is that krueger like or uh and when you think about Robert England in those movies, I would say that England gave it 110% every time, regardless of the quality of the role. Like, yeah. like those yeah. Freddy Krueger movies were not all good yeah. <laughs> and they weren't all incredibly well written, but, but England showed up and it, and it makes those movies infinitely more watchable because England showed up to them. And I feel like Lee actively did not do that. Like when he was not into a role, like he showed it. He he was not able to conceal his lack of enthusiasm um, for better or for worse. And and I'm not faulting him for that. I, I understand why he would feel that way. And you're right. Like they did not. 
Like, it's very clear the Dracula stuff was written hastily. Um, I mean, for God's sakes, the 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 movie sets up Ralph Bates as, like, the villain. It's If anything, the biggest fault I have with this movie is it's odd that Ralph Bates just kind of drops off and goes away halfway through the film. <laughs> like, that's weird, right? Like, given how it's set up and how that character is treated and how he sort of coerces everyone into getting Dracula's blood and going through with all this. It's odd that Bates wouldn't have been kept around to be Dracula's servant. It's so weird that he just like disappears and Dracula comes and goes, I will avenge him. And it's like, what? Like, why the fuck do you care? Like you're Dracula. Like you don't give a shit about these people. Exactly. Like you just want to be like, it doesn't make sense that he would want revenge for Ralph Bates. Like that, that's not, in character it just it it feels very thrown together at the last minute so christopher lee could be in the movie like there wasn't very much thought put into that yeah the entire the fact that the movie is driven by this you know this revenge plot where dracula is taking time out of his night to bump off all these people who killed one of his underlings the the only thing the only way i guess it can make sense to me is the fact that he's not angry at the loss of life he's not angry at the loss of the man he considers it a personal affront to himself that somebody would dare touch his property and hurt his property that's the only way that it makes sense to me because you're right he otherwise he doesn't give a rat's ass paul i just want to say one thing we already talked about this the last three minutes what we've been watching says the directs the living hell out of this movie Mm -hmm. like Every shot is beautifully composed. The way he moves the camera, the lighting, it's so wonderfully gothic and just stunning to behold. And the sets and this, to me, this is, you know, and I think I noted this for another movie that we talked about, a Francis film a couple of episodes ago that sadly I can't remember. Uh, it is late and I am tired, just being fair. But this does feel like a beautiful transition between gothic hammer and 70s like hammer. You know, you no, know, this movie isn't modern in that sense. It's not a contemporary film set in the 70s, but it feels like a 70s film. It feels like it's reaching toward the decade that's coming, even though it's still giving us all those wonderfully gothic tropes that we've come to expect from hammer at this point. And I just I love that mix. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, I actually think that's one of the movie's strengths. I think it's one of Hammer's more forward-thinking films in terms of style. I don't know that it was recognized as such at the time, but I think it more closely sort of dials into where horror was going than several of the other films that were actively trying to do that. It does you know, The Devil Rides Out better than The Devil Rides Out did. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And yeah, I, I'm not although, saying, like, I like The Devil's Rides Out. I no, mean, I it's, I'm, it's. I'm not even talking about quality of movie. I'm talking the, about the, like, the problem. Things. Yeah. And you're right. Well, it, it makes a more modern, relatable Devil Rides Out than what The Devil Rides Out is. I think the problem with Devil Rides Out is that it just. It's a movie that probably should have been made. 10 years earlier <laughs> like Honestly, i think for the time that it came out it feels too old-fashioned you know i love fisher yeah you know i love fisher 
Oh, I love Fisher. Peter says these, the devil rides out, would have been a fucking banger, man. Well, because he would have brought more moral ambiguity to it. Um, I mean, 100%. Whereas Fisher was like, you know, hard line, right, wrong, black and white, that's it. You know, there, there's no... There's no ambiguity to any of the morality presented in that film. Um, and that's a problem through a modern lens. It's less interesting. Uh, had that movie been made in the late 40s or early 50s, I think The Devil Rides Out would play better because we would have a different contextual understanding of what it was attempting to do and and what had sort of come before it. But coming out in the late 60s, too much shit has transpired to make a, a, a moral stand in a movie like that. You know, I, 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 I think this like Sazdi would have not done that story wise. I think he would have altered it to make it more relevant to the culture at the time. I can't argue. We have strawberry curd here again. Um, Kind of looks I, delicious. It really does. Like all these guys are like, no, you drink the filth, drink it. And I'm like, fuck it, give me a straw. Like it doesn't look that bad. Throw some ice cubes in there, give me a green straw, maybe put it in a venti cup. Fuck it. I'm a Starbucks. I don't drink coffee anymore. Can't do a lot of uh a lot of my old favorite Starbucks drinks on keto, Paul. That's uh that's that's Oh yeah, I forgot uh, you're doing keto. Yeah, you know I started uh, working out again. I, I I'm doing this uh, this workout regimen. I have my uh, yeah, I have my gym membership, so I'm hitting my local Planet Fitness again, and it's kind of nice. Like after yeah. the last, I haven't had yeah. a drink in over three months. I'm I'm doing keto. I'm starting to hit the gym again. I'm walking again. I'm feeling better. It's it, it's awesome, kind of like man. it's weird that that's happening, and it's funny. You tell me if it's the same for you, but. It's interesting that that's kind of dovetailing with like what we hope is the end of the pandemic. It feels like it's a natural thing to want to start whipping yourself into shape now that the world is coming back online. You know what I mean? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm proud of you. That's awesome, man. That's awesome that you're doing that. Yeah. I, I haven't given up drinking, so I'm not I'm not there yet. Uh, but <laughs> well, you can't. Someday, you literally someday can't. Maybe. We can't. One of us has to drink in this drinking podcast. Chicks well, is like, Paul, you have to drink. <laughs> no, I, 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 I bring in a third co-host to get sloshed. Like they don't even have to. I'll, I'll keep drinking. I don't think I, I do not. Yeah. It's my, it's like one of my few vices. So, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm a bad person. It's cool. But like, don't it's, uh, because I'm sure they find a way to shame you. Well, and then people would find a way to shame them. And then, you know, Twitter would blow up. It's a shame cycle. It is. It's it's rough. We do what we can do. It really, Twitter Twitter has become fuck you, no fuck you. Like that's uh, that's a state of <laughs> any and all discourse. <laughs> okay, before he you exits, know, you know uh, the thing though is I do really like Twitter and all that stuff. I like no, talking, but the, but, no, but uh, I, that's do, how do I got you... to know you. I mean this 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 podcast probably wouldn't exist without Twitter. Well, that's the thing. It's, you know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, uh, you know, back when there was all the drama last week, uh, you, you know, Twitter, Twitter has drama every week, sometimes every other day. And I remember talking to somebody and we were basically like, it's not like it used to be. It used to be fun coming on here. So my question to you is, Paul, 
do you like Twitter or do you just appreciate the fact that you can still catch up and talk about stuff with people that you met in the before times before things got really fucking crazy? Because I got to tell you, I I've got more people on mute now than ever before because I don't want to straight up unfollow some people, but at the same time, like it's, it's gotten exhausting. Like what we're seeing on screen right now, Hargood and Secker and uh, Paxton, like just beating a dude to death. That to me, like we see that on Twitter every day. It's like, fuck it. If, if nobody's going to offend us, we're going to find something to offend us. And then we're going to beat them to death in front of everybody else. Does it make sense? No, probably not. But I need my fucking pound of flesh today. Like, give me my cup of blood. Um, okay, before, no, really, before he exits the movie and he's about to here in seconds, I just want to give a shout out to Ralph Bates here. Marvelous, you know, actor, would have been an incredible leading man had he gone on to lead other roles. Well, he did. I mean, he did do Frankenstein and Horror of Frankenstein, which I think is uh, deeply underloved. Um, he would appear in Lust for a Vampire. He would appear in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde with Martine Bezik. Marvelous actor. I, I wish he had done more with Hammer. And um, yeah, I would love to see what this... Because here's the thing, Paul, I, and I hate to say this because it sounds like we're bashing Lee. I think Lee was well within his rights to just phone it in, given what transpired to get him on set in the first place and the fact that he wasn't being respected with the material he was given. I can't knock Lee for not showing up fully, right? But I will say this. I think Bates going from, you know, here's a guy who had a leading role reduced to five shooting days. And he still fucking brought it, man. So I think if the series had continued with him, I think he would have been all about it. I think he would have been a mustache twirling Dracula who would have fucking blast to watch. And uh, I don't know. I I, I think Ralph Bates is kind of like an undersung hero and a hammer uh, simply because he didn't, you know, he didn't have that many roles. But I think he's he's really wonderful. So uh, my hat's off to him and I can't wait until we get to Horror Frankenstein so I can, uh, you know, I can extol his virtues at length. I agree. Yeah, I'm a huge Bates fan. I'm a fan of Horror of Dracula. We've talked about Horror of Dracula before. Um, I mean, we haven't done the commentary yet, but like, yeah, I'm I'm a fan of that movie. And Even I agree. I think in this movie, he brings way more energy than he needed to. Um, and that's why I'm a little sad. He just kind of disappears. Like, it, it feels anticlimactic given how hard he goes in the scenes that he's in. Um, but yeah, I would have loved to see uh, uh, him as like a primary villain in a franchise. I think that would have been awesome. Oh, he would have been marvelous. Like even if, uh, you know, I kind of wish he'd gotten to play Frankenstein. I'm glad that we got, Paul, are you okay? It sounds like you collapsed. How much have you had to I'm drink? I'm fine. I, I dropped something. But I'm okay, good. I'm check, checking on it. <laughs> no, I think. Um, I don't know how much. I'm glad Cushing got his final go round as um, as Frankenstein. I, I, you know, I'm glad that he did uh, that final movie. But at the same time, like I kind of would have liked to have seen Bates, you know, do a Frankenstein sequel. I, I think like he marvelously hams it up in that movie. Like he's his comic sensibilities as that character. I think were just fucking spot on. Uh, and it's a shame he only got to do it once. You know, there's that great. Have you ever seen that uh, production still? where Cushing visited the set. And so there was this picture. It was almost like a uh, passing of the torch 
kind of moment between the two where uh, Bates and uh, Peter Cushing were sort of stood next to one another uh, for a publicity still, the two Frankensteins together. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's on the uh, still galler- gallery for the Blu-ray. I, I will shout out the bloody-eyed Dracula here. That is a great look. I I kind of wish he kept that. Like, they do the thing where, uh, you know, his eyes get super bloodshot, but they still look normal. I love the look of just the all-red eye, uh, and I kind of wish they kept that. But, yeah, again, you know, here's Lee. Here's his first moment, and he's just kind of like, okay, old boy, let's just get through this. What are the fucking lines? Uh, not that Christopher Lee would ever say fucking. I Yeah, like, unfortunately, it... It's a scene like his first scene saps the movie of a little energy. Like there, there's a a distinct apathy <laughs> to his appearance that is in contrast to <laughs> Bates's, you know, intensity that we just saw. You know, they scene. destroyed my servant. They, they shall, shall be, be destroyed. destroyed. <laughs> Which okay, it's. I feel like this is a bad look for us because it looks like we're shitting on Lee as Dracula. We're not. No, like he's no, still but, good. No, but I like, think we're sympathizing with him. I I know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. That's true. I am sympathizing with him because I agree. Like it sucks that he didn't get a better uh, uh, script for for his Dracula. I mean, for God's sakes, like imagine if someone was like, "Hey, you could write a Dracula movie starring Lee. What you would do with it? Oh my you goodness. know, like." you would you would do amazing things as would a lot of screenwriters at the time though it feels like it was just what can we churn out as quickly as possible that's going to make money as opposed to paying attention to what really makes these movies special yeah is it weird that i love these little hats is that a weird thing to note paul i mean it's it's not not weird. I think <laughs> I think as a style choice, uh, I, I I think they're adorable. Um, do, what do, what do the hats really accomplish when they're that small? Because it doesn't like it clearly doesn't fit on her head all the way. No, like, it's just uh, I think it's just an accessory. It's like uh, wouldn't it wouldn't it fall off if you were riding a horse vigorously? Like wouldn't the wind blow it off? What's holding it on her head? I fuck fine, Paul. Um, I don't know these <laughs> things. I I didn't contemplate the trilby that long. I just I pointed out that it was cute. That's all. Well, you know what you didn't count on was that I'm like however many drinks deep, and I'm gonna, keep, <laughs> I'm gonna pursue this topic of conversation. Can I just say one thing? I want I wanted to call back to Hargood for a second. Uh, rat fuck that he is. Um. Is this not maybe uh, forgetting the creepier stuff later on? And we can definitely dive into that. But everything that we've seen up until this point in the movie, I feel like, why do I feel like that's maybe a more accurate depiction of a typical father daughter relationship of that time than we see in most movies? Like, I I just feel like most guys of that era would have been that overbearing and that conservative and that, kind of just horrid to their uh their daughters and likely their well their sons they probably just uh uh y- you know groomed to be you know younger versions of themselves so they could live vicariously through them uh but it just to me it feels there's something that rings very true about this relationship beyond the fact that beyond these two specific characters if that makes any sense 
No, I agree. I mean, and and partially because that's what the movies have taught us. <laughs> you know, that that's kind of the father-daughter relationship we see in period pieces like this. Um, plus, there was so much. I mean, anytime you see a father in a movie like this, like, treating his daughter this way, it just reeks of, like, masculine insecurity. Yeah. You know, like, he's so... Uh, he's so unable to do the things he wants to do, be the person he wants to be. He's jealous of his daughter being interested in another man other than himself. You know, it's sort of the, the weird kind of, I want you to be obsessed with me, like daddy's little girl kind of thing. Oh, I think um, it, do you, and do you not think it veers creepy. into the sexual between them? Like I, it's certainly on his. Like I, I feel like his, his interest in sort of repressing her is not paternal. It's not a matter of keeping her from other men because he's looking out for her. It's the fact that there is a jealousy there because he actually desires his own daughter. Well, yeah. Well, he's also a piece of shit. You know, like. Very clear. It's like creepy as hell. Yeah, I mean, like the way he treats her and the way he looks at her and the way he sort of drinks and gets angry. He he comes off as a jealous lover, not as a overbearing father. No, totally. Yeah, it's very much. Are you seeing that mannequin? You know, like I. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And there is a scene in this where. Oh, and thank goodness it wasn't the case. Uh, this, especially coming after Frankenstein, must be destroyed. But there is a moment in this movie where you can almost imagine there would be an assault scene, uh, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad that doesn't happen. Uh, but you know, it definitely feels like there is that threat sort of looming over that scene, and it just makes it all the creepier, and it makes Hargood, um, yeah, all the more of a bastard. Yeah, and it's it's not afraid to put those ideas out there, but at the same time, it does it more tastefully than Frankenstein must be destroyed. (laughs) Which, why can I ask then? Why do you think, okay. So if this was a production that did feature, you know, it was leaning harder into the more exploitative aspects of horror at this point, you know, there, uh, there was a sequence in the brothel where I understand it was cut out initially and it got a PG rating, but nevertheless, that material was shot with all the nude women and, you know, the dancing and the brothel and whatnot. And of course, this is this is a bit of a gorier movie, too. Um, I, I'm wondering where Carreras was with his extra pages this time around. You know what I mean? Or do you think? Well, that... my, I mean, I have thoughts on that. I, I, I mean, part of it is, you know, in, in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed he wanted that in there because there was nothing in it that like related to that at all. He was like, Oh, well there needs to be something salacious and this movie has nothing salacious. So I'm going to put this scene in this movie on the other hand has, you know, a fair amount of salacious sequences. So in his eyes, it wouldn't need a scene like that because it already has stuff. And I think what's really fucked up about that is that Carreras saw a, you know, uh, well, let's be honest, what was a rape sequence as being something as titillating as burlesque dancers, you know, dancing around naked, which is a really fucked up thing. 
that that he views things that way. But I, I think that's kind of what it boils down to is that this movie already has a bunch of those scenes. So they didn't feel the need to insert anything superfluous. Are you there? There's silence now. Oh, sorry. No, I was talking. Uh, sorry, I had my uh, mic on mute for a second. No, I was just, uh, <laughs> I agree with you. And uh, to cut a short, uh, you know, just jump right into my uh, my exclamation point at the end of that agreement. I'll just note that that is a terrible fake mustache on screen. It's true. It's true. He uh, He should grow a real mustache. As someone who has a mustache, it's not that hard. You just got to grow it. Paul, it, that you, you, that, that is not just a mustache that you have, sir. Well, I mean, it takes practice. You have to really put a lot of effort into it. Okay. No, seriously, actually, if we can take a second, all joking aside, how much effort? Like explain, explain the beard, <laughs> but especially explain the mustache <laughs> to listeners out there, because I don't think we're giving them the proper image of, uh, of, of what you've crafted, sir. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I, I have a rather large beard and my mustache, uh, initially my wife is a big fan of like beards and mustaches. And so she's always wanted me to grow a more robust, beard slash mustache and in the pandemic i decided yeah why not i'm not no one sees me if it looks terrible who cares and so i did what she always wanted me to do i grew a very large beard and i allowed my mustache to grow out into my beard to where i could sort of twist it up almost like a villain in a cartoon (laughs) with a twisty mustache I saw a picture of you, uh, and I was or, like, "That that is a man who is going to tie a woman or, or, to some or like a tracks. young, a young, uh, a young Santa Claus, a young, more handsome Santa who's fairly svelte." Uh, and uh, yeah, I twisted twisted it up, and uh, I like how it looks. <laughs> I don't know what kind and, of maintenance does that mustache specifically take? Forgetting the beard, but that to make your stash, you'd do what be it does. surprised. Here's the thing. You'd be surprised at how little maintenance it takes. I literally don't do anything. I don't I don't have wax. I don't have anything. I just twist it. I twist it and it just stays that way. I don't know. I have this weird thing where you can just, you know. It's it's annoying in the morning when you first wake up because, like, your beard gets all mushed up when you're sleeping. And you have to kind of, like, wet it down and sort of reshape it. But. Other okay. than that, it's really not that bad. Good. Okay. I thought you were going to break out some like hook smee like stuff where you noted that, uh, you know, like there was going to be earwax involved with curling up the mustache. Like, oh, uh, no, no, I don't use, I don't use uh, smee's earwax. Um, although it's funny you brought up Hook uh, because I adore that movie. I think it's amazing. And I just want to take this opportunity. I want to take this opportunity to say that Hook is uh, one of Spielberg's best films. It's one of uh, um, one of my favorite movies from 
childhood. I adore Hook. Uh, I think it's yeah, I think it's great. I think it 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 gets shit on a lot, and I think it deserves more it, affection. It also, did, also and I don't understand it because that movie is fucking amazing. It's fucking amazing. And and the final thing I'll say is, it is one of my absolute favorite John Williams scores. The score to that movie is ridiculously good. And tell me, tell me, like, there you are, Peter, doesn't get you to tear up a little bit. I mean, come oh, on. No. You know? I cry. Well, and I've, I talk about this all the time on this podcast. I cry at everything. In, in During the course of the, of the movie Hook, I cry no less than God, probably 15 times. I cry, like, every five minutes in that movie. Every little emotional beat tears me up in that film. It is so effective. And, and and the other thing is the food fight scene is one of the best scenes in any movie ever. It's pure joy. It like is. That, that, that scene is so fucking perfect uh, as a movie. Like, and, and, oh, man. Oh, that's so good. And, Rufio, and when they, dude. When he, when, and, and during that scene, too, is when he when he has his Roof. when he has the marbles, when he has Toodles marbles. And he's like, oh, he really did lose his marbles. <laughs> Because they were left in, in never. Oh man, I love that movie. That's fantastic, oh, and I don't. I, I wish somebody would no, write a paper as to why people <laughs> like. I don't know why that movie was so poorly received initially, and I don't know why it continues sense. to it's be. It's so good. It's one of, the, like you said, it's one of his best films. And I, dude, I even like. I I was like ten at the time. Like I was, I was too old for them, but I still like. I had that comic book nerdy collector gene thing happening, and I collected the fucking toys. When I was like nine or ten years old, man, like, and that's yeah. how much I love that movie. I was already beyond that, but I was just like, these are too fucking cool, and the movie's too fucking great. What what year was it? Ninety ninety or ninety one or something? I want to like say it was ninety, maybe ninety one. So I was like six or seven when it came out. Um, I don't think I saw it until uh, VHS. I think that was the first. I don't think I saw it in the theater. But I, it was it was a like one of those VHS tapes that was watched relentlessly. You know, like I watched it till the tape broke. Yep. Um, so yeah, oh, no, me way, and my uh, brother huge into that movie. Michael Ripper is now on screen. Ripper, you yes. Take a drink. Uh, well, Sorry. okay. I don't I mean, make the rules, except I just did. I just want to notice the the scene that we just passed up. Uh, you know, we had Dracula seducing Alice, and Alice kills her father her father Hargood and um I just I I kind of love it it was just very curious to me that Hargood is the first of the trio to die given that he's essentially the worst of the lot like you would you would imagine typically that Dracula you know would almost build up to him but no like he's 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 done straight away and I I love Dracula at the end of it saying the first you know it's very very kind of count of money Christo to me but I wanted to ask you if Hargood, Secker, and Paxton represent a, a certain type of man, you know, like these uh, these hedonistic elites, and poor Alice and Paul are kind of those who exist under the thumb of these people, then who do you think who who does Dracula represent here? Because this story could have uh, it doesn't, but this story. It, 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 but it could have presented Dracula as an anti-hero in this tale almost. Like an almost positive force wiping these guys out 
you know, if, if, a positive force, if for no other reason, then he dispatches these bastards, right? Now, the movie doesn't do that. But I still think it's curious, like, what, you know, thematically, like, what place Dracula occupies in this story? Or do you think it, you know, it doesn't matter. He's merely an agent of chaos as we're in this. Well, yeah, I mean, so in this particular movie, Dracula, to me, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, he very much feels like an afterthought. <laughs> he it, it doesn't feel super intuitive to what the what the movie was set up to be. Um, and I think a, an, a, almost a more interesting way of looking at it is like what was courtly? What was Ralph Bates meant to represent? You know, because that's who sort of Dracula was supposed to kind of be. Um, and I almost wonder what that original movie would have been. Is it was would it have been courtly taking out these guys? Um, but you know, yeah, and, and it, I think and like so why? You know, yeah, and I think like Hargood being wiped out first. Um, be, and you're right. Usually, the the person who's the most like clearly villainous and hateful is going to be the one we build up to. But I think this movie has a different perspective towards you know the wealthier class and the aristocracy. Aristocracy, and I think it's like saying, well, you know, the guy who's the most clearly, obviously villainous almost isn't as dangerous as the ones who are are more subtly problematic and the ones who can kind of blend in more, they are scarier in some ways and can do more harm because people don't see them as a villain. You know, Hargood is, is very clearly a villain. <laughs> and there is something kind of like you can almost appreciate something about Dracula here in that compared to those guys, at least he's honest. Like at yeah, least you know who yeah, he is. Yeah, Dracula is exactly who he is. There's <laughs> no pretense. Like, but yeah, I think I think Dracula comes in. So I guess what does Dracula represent? I think he represents the dangers of. I don't know. So to me, it's like these are all repressed individuals who are a abiding by society's laws on the surface but going hog wild behind closed doors right which is not not a good thing they're not balancing out sort of their desires with their everyday life and dracula is kind of the the cautionary tale of what happens when you repress your desires and then allow them to sort of explode and, and there's no semblance of self-control. Um, the repercussions of that are, you know, opening yourself up to the evils of the world that might otherwise have been shielded by uh, society's boundaries you know, you've you've broken the boundaries of society, and now you're susceptible to uh, untethered sort of evil that is more intrinsic in the universe than you might otherwise have ever ever known. I will say, you know, I I, I think that's a great reading. I uh, 
you know, it, it strikes me too what a uh, kind of what a loss it was that they didn't push the role of Dracula a little harder in this movie, and they didn't let Lee. They didn't give him more to work with because I, I I wonder if there's a reading of this movie that sees him almost as being something akin to Satan. I mean, when Courtney, you know, uh, uh, liquefies the blood and passes the goblets and they're in a black church, it's very much a black Sabbath. Like, you know, sure, it's Dracula, but it's also kind of like Satan. And I love that. Yeah, you're right. Like, I, you know, those guys felt like they they wanted to dabble they wanted to push themselves further. They wanted to go to the extreme and in doing so, like they, they mentioned, they eventually meet Satan or they at least eventually meet pure evil only to discover that, you know, evil has no regard for them. You know, mm-hmm. like he, he doesn't care about their desires. He, he, he will use those desires to his own end, but ultimately, you know, that will lead to their undoing. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of a wonderful comeuppance for those guys who have been given everything, who expect everything, who have never yeah. been called on their bullshit, who have never been punished. And I think it's kind of marvelous that they finally achieve the zenith of their depravity and it destroys them one by one, you know? Yeah. No, you're right. I, I will agree. say it's interesting too, like after, and this is not the first time they've done this in a, in a Dracula movie or even a, vampire movie but you know it's i i love hayden's performance in this uh i love that after alice uh you know kind of uh <laughs> she got dracula uh you know she's she's sort of dressing <laughs> dressing and acting sort of much more provocatively now and it's uh it's just kind of fun to watch that turn in her performance and i'd love that she i don't know tell me if you think i'm wrong about this but there's something about her performance that tells me that alice is still there and Alice may not even mind like her position right now. To me, she's not merely a zombie doing a vampire's bidding. She's somebody who's finally free in a way. And obviously that theme has been touched on before in the films, but I, I've never seen it quite portrayed this way, at least by Hammer, in such a way that w- we feel that this is just kind of a natural extension to Alice, you know, finally no longer repressed. Like this is this is maybe she's not a bad person, maybe she's not evil, but in coming into contact with evil, simply because she was hungering for something else, something different, something away from the, you know, the sort of constrictive binds of her father, like she's willing to dabble in that much as her father was, you know, for just a bit of freedom, you know, and just to breathe a bit. And uh, I do love, there is a moment coming up here where she sort of, uh, you know, feeds Lucy to Dracula. There is this, quick little look of regret on her face and uh but i think it's you know really interesting that she still continues to uh to do what she does i mean dracula has a recruiter in alice now you know man's a man's a pimp but um (laughs) (laughs) truth no i i i agree i think um I really do think that this movie more than almost any of the other ones I mean they some of the movies touch on that um you know Barbara Shelley's character in Prince of Darkness certainly kind of feels more free um as she's sort of like taken under Dracula's wing um but I think this movie really really offers her freedom by way of Dracula's influence um, and in a fun sort of enjoyable way that feels unique against the other vampire films. Um, 
And I really do like that. I think that's a really interesting perspective. And I think it also sort of like hammers home what we were talking about with how this movie views societal norms and wealth and position and class as, as sort of things that you're bound to that stop you from enjoying yourself and achieving fulfillment, uh, forcing these people to try to find it in other ways in secret, in repression that is really unhealthy and invites all these avenues for, I guess what you could call ultimately evil to enter into their world and start to corrupt other elements of their, of their society as a whole um, just because they weren't allowed to explore uh, how they actually felt, you know, without having to kind of push beyond what's acceptable. So I, I, I do think it's, it's a cool sort of element that this movie employs that the other ones really didn't for the most part. I agree. And it's, uh, you know, it's even interesting that that goes right down to the climax, too, where there's kind of an argument between Alice and Paul, where it seems like he gets through to her. And he is speaking to the actual Alice. He's not speaking to, you know, again, a zombie, you know, or Mm -hmm. somebody completely under the sway of evil, like he is connecting with the real person. And she is still making choices that reveal her to be, you know, kind of on Dracula's side. Uh, I think that's a really neat idea. And my God, what a shot. Mm. Like, again, Sazdi shoots this movie, like, just, it's stunning. It really is. I, I think like this might he be... opted. Oh, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just real quick. I'll say, I think he might be one of Hammer's best shooters. He is. Well, it, it feels distinct. It feels uniquely him. You know, it doesn't feel like he's aping another director. He's not trying to make a Terrence Fisher film. He's he's doing something different. I also think it was smart that, like, I don't know. I feel like had Fisher shot this, and, and as you know, I'm a huge Fisher fan. I feel like when, when you were seeing that shot of the church when they were first walking in, there would have been a very, like, moody atmospheric sensibility like a a a wide depth of field whereas the way um the way sasty shoots it is it's very shallow depth of field there's a lot of light um but everything feels sort of compressed as they're walking in but you still get a sense of the grandiose nature of the space um and then the depth of field sort of increases as the sequence progresses forward. And as they start to sort of like, you know, push the grave out. Now there's a little bit more depth to the, to the scene, but you still have a sense of everything feels sort of on top of them while at the same time feeling vast. I think these are decisions that are more modern, um, that, that don't feel as classic, but, also feel unique and different and pushing the movie kind of forward into a new generation. Um, and it elicits a little bit more, I don't know, claustrophobia and fear 
into the characters that are actually trying to fight evil in a place of, of what is supposed to be sort of worship and, and good. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I think it really works well for the movie and, and feels really unique against all the other movies we've seen hammer do. I think it's interesting in all that we have a sequence here where two men have descended into a crypt where the, the friend of our heroine, as it were, who is now under the sway of Dracula has become a vampire is laying in her tomb. She's about to get staked to the heart possibly. And she's named Lucy. <laughs> yeah. The Lucy thing threw me a little bit. I was like, what a, what a, what an interesting choice. For her name. <laughs> I just, I wish they could have had a moment with Dracula where he's introduced to her. You know, this is Lucy. Really? Yeah, her <laughs> name's Lucy. You're sure. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you fucking with me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, no, but yeah, I do love this scene and I love. That I, you know, in a great way, it's kind of awesome that she's named Lucy. It's kind of great that we have a couple of men here who are about to see to her destruction because then we get to see a a subversion of what we expect from the end of this scene. I think in a really wonderful way. Yeah, I, I, you know, <clears throat> I think it's pretty clear you don't name a character like this Lucy on accident. You know, anyone writing a Dracula movie. <laughs> I think you know exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. So you're you're trying to build up expectations and subvert them um, while at the same time sort of honoring the legacy that's come before. But yeah, I, 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 it it caught me off guard. (laughs) The first time I saw this movie, I was like, Oh, Lucy. Okay. That fucking choice. It's a great mustache, even though it's fake. It's terrible. I. What man did they uh, did they stash scalp to be able to glue that onto that dude's upper lip? Like uh, I didn't. I didn't know uh, stash scalping was a thing, and now I'm really scared. I don't want to get stash scalped. Probably time (laughs) to shave, Paul. My wife would probably leave me. She loves my beard and my mustache. She's a big fan. I, I don't think I'd have it if it wasn't for her, like, being a big fan, <laughs> to be honest. Can you, I mean, can you tell her one morning, honey, I tripped, I fell on a razor? Like, is that a, or is she not going to hear it? No, she would not be happy. <laughs> and I just, I just want to make her happy. That's it. That's, That's fair. all I want to do. God, this does look great. Um, it does, yeah. I I, I know I say that like a good half dozen times every commentary with every single Hammer film, but I always mean it. I'm not sure I've seen a bad one. I mean, there's a reason we keep coming back to Hammer, right? I mean, they they have a certain look. There's a a certain ambiance that they adhere to, even across the different directors. I love the Star Trek uh, eye lighting there on Dracula as he gives his uh, his nod. Yep. <laughs> and this scene, I that's a little upsetting, kind of like the wide-angle lens on the victim, like right on his face as blood spatters it. Like it's a little more, uh, 
a little more envelope pushy than Hammer's done with her violence up until this point. I'm not saying that we haven't seen some blood. We have, but there, there's something about wallowing in the violence of that moment that I don't think we've quite seen before. No, yeah, it's it feels... I don't know. There, that scene feels a little bit more intense. Again, every movie inches closer to what the prevalent horror movie in the seventies really was Um, a little more docu style, intense in your face, odd angles, um, uncomfortability is a big thing. And early hammer films are never uncomfortable. Even when they're quote unquote scary, they still feel controlled. You know, I, I think whenever I think of a Terrence Fisher film, I think of the word control. Um, everything feels under his control, but in this film, you know, and some of the other later hammer films, you know, it feels a little more chaotic. It feels like some of this stuff, anything could happen, um, with, with the visuals and what you're about to see. So when Dracula is watching and they're staking him, and you cut to like a weird, almost canted angle close up of his face with blood splattered upon it. It feels like, ooh, this is this is a little more dangerous. This is a little bit more. Um, I don't know what's going to happen next, and uncomfortable, and I shouldn't be seeing this. And it it starts to get at, I think, where horror was going. So I think again, in some ways, this movie gets the prescience right. And sort of understands that horror is changing, even if it doesn't go all the way with it. Yeah, I agree. And again, that's why it feels kind of like uh, feels kind of like a transition to me. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a stepping stone. Um, and I and I wish that. Horror Frankenstein could have been the other side of that coin. <laughs> but hey, I think that hey, Horror hey, Frankenstein... Easy. 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 Let's, uh, I, let's not slander I like that Horror movie Frankenstein. Quite a bit. Well, you, you... Yeah, but you can't... You don't think it was entirely successful, though, right? Like, do, I, do you think I, that I, movie was, like, a total success and the audiences just didn't get it? Or do you think that it just wasn't altogether successful in what it was attempting to do? Um... I think it was more or less a success as a film. I think that audiences were kind of over the Frankenstein series by that point, uh, especially mm-hmm. with not even getting the, the the marquee star back in the role. I think Hammersaw is an opportunity to reboot the franchise for a younger audience, and I think that audience was never going to be there in the first place. So they, you know, they they were never going to interest the younger audience at that point with another Frankenstein movie, and I think. You know, for whatever diehard fans or older school fans there were at that point for those movies, were probably turned off by the fact that Cushing was no longer a part of the franchise and this younger dude was in the role. Uh, as far as the movie itself goes, divorced from all that, I think it's great. And I and I, I really like the movie. I recognize that I am in the minority on that. I do. No, I I and uh, we'll talk about it obviously, but I I I really like the movie um, a lot. But I do think that they didn't, the audience they were attempting to reach 
Um, I don't think they went far enough in either direction for what it was that that audience would have been interested in. It's like it wants to be a raunchy sort of younger horror comedy, but it doesn't go far enough in any of those particular lanes um, to, to appeal to an audience that was interested in movies like, you know, Night of the Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, it, it was it was still sort of the classy, traditional Hammer movie in a lot of ways, but with like this subtle, wry sense of biting humor that I think just would not resonate with an American audience, which is really who they needed to appeal to. And I think the British audience, the only thing I, I agree with you on that front where with the British audience, it was like, well, you don't have Peter Cushing. So why are we going to show up to this? <laughs> you know, I think it might've been more appealing to a British audience, but I think they were just uninterested because it didn't have the person they liked in it. Um, and the U S audience was just, it, it just, was too disparate from what a unite what a u.s sense of humor would have been because look at the movies that were comedic at in the late 60s early 70s they were they were much more overt sex comedies um versus what we actually got with horror frankenstein having said all of that this many years removed i really like the movie i think it's really good but i think for the time that it was made it, it just didn't it, i don't know who it was for you know i don't know that any audience would have really responded to it so wait do you do you hold that against the movie itself though because you posed the question no, but do i think, but I think is... that i think that when you say like if i say hey was this movie effective you have to look at it in the time that it was made so the answer would for me would be no, because God, at that no. time it was not effective. But now it is because I can look at it and remove it from the context of the time. But in the time, like that was a bad decision. It was a bad decision to to, to make that movie and try to make it big in the U.S. Like that doesn't make sense. It was never going to succeed. OK, wait. Like, so I feel like we're about to get into a. Christine Brown, like, is she a <laughs> would I want her to burn uh, hell in real life or just but, in the but, confines but, of a movie? So, what I'm, I'm asking not... is here do you think Horror Frankenstein as a film is successful in its aims to, today or when it was made? That, that, no, no, I'm saying like. Those are those are two different ways to view. I don't think they are because at the time, like that's a the answer is different so when okay so when you say a great movie then when anybody says a great movie is ahead of its time are you still then saying that the movie is flawed in its approach or are you just saying that maybe the filmmaker's vision uh, you know isn't uh 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 you know isn't going to connect with the audiences today like maybe it's not cut from the cloth of the day necessarily but that doesn't necessarily that doesn't make the movie flawed. I think I think the reason I would say that in relation to that movie. So okay, like let's talk like Wes Craven's new nightmare was ahead of its time. Yes. Um so like that's that a great movie perfect. that was completely successful in what it was attempting to do. I think the reason 
I'm harder on a movie like Horror Frankenstein is I think the people who like I think Wes Craven when he made New Nightmare was like like didn't give a fuck about the people watching it at that time. He was just like, this is my vision. This is what I want to make. I believe that Horror Frankenstein was specifically made to appeal to people at that time. Like, this is what the kids want. This is what we need to make Frankenstein into. This is the only way it can proceed. We need to get rid of Cushing. We need to bring in someone new and younger. We need to be sexy and this, that, and the other. I think all of that was wrong. They were wrong. They did not understand their audience. They did not understand what that movie needed to be. Um, Having said all that, I like it. I think it's fun. I get why it's entertaining. But I don't think they were correct in making a movie for the audience that they were attempting to appeal to. But no, but okay, but they were making the movie for an audience, right? They probably assumed that it was the audience at the time and the audience wasn't there. But for the audience they were making it for, did they were clearly making like a sexy Frankenstein movie, a darkly funny Frankenstein movie. Yeah, the, like yeah. A, they all were of those things make it a funny, sexy, young Frankenstein. And all of those things work. So is it a matter of do, do we hold it against the movie because the audience is back then they were connect to it because whatever audience really pretty well i mean I, I again i i think it's and we'll talk about it i feel like we're going into the frame i mean i i find it to be more flawed than i i, I do i do think there are flaws to it i don't think it's a perfect movie um, well, that's that's a hell of a bar, though, Paul. Okay, well, you know what? That's just like a saying. Yeah. You know, perfect. <laughs> you're you're absolutely say. right, and I knew that even when I said it. And I apologize. You know, I, it's I always not like when people <laughs> take the the you know get on their high horse about the phrase "guilty pleasure" <laughs> when it comes to yeah, movies. You know, it's like I don't think know. it's a guilty. I like the movie. I you just I, I, I don't. So I don't think it's entirely successful. though. I don't. I, I think it's a good, fun movie that has problems and was definitely off base for for what they were attempting to do at the time. That's what I guess I land on. I think, but I like it. I think it's fun. I think that's fair. I will say, like, and I liked your analogy with New Nightmare because I think you're right. I don't think Craven did give a damn. I think he was leveraging the success of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and his position within it to basically make a really bold, subversive movie. And I don't think he did give a damn about his uh, potential audiences because he knew people would eventually find it. And I love that. But to your argument about Horror of Frankenstein, take something like, uh, and I know I'm sounding lofty here by comparing Horror of Frankenstein to this, but hear me out. Citizen Kane. Like, I think that that's a movie that Orson Welles did craft for audiences of the day. And they just weren't there for it. But I wouldn't hold that against the movie, which I think is otherwise fucking perfect. Sure. And I mean, Citizen Kane, even though it didn't, um, oh, you know, land with uh, audiences at the time, it was still up for a bunch of Oscars. <laughs> you know, people was still... It? 
Yeah, I didn't think it was for a whole bunch of things. It didn't win anything. I thought that was one of those like uh, I thought that movie was always used as one of those illustrations for, you know, this movie wasn't appreciated at its time. But so many years later, oh no, it was it was nominated for like it was nominated for uh, best like screenplay. I'm pretty sure it got best actor. I think it was up for best picture. It didn't win, but it was nominated like people recognized that it was good. How old like, are the Academy Awards? I didn't even. Oh, think the Academy that... Awards are fucking old. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what year they started in, but yeah, there were Oscars back then. Because that was like late. That was early forties. There were Oscars back then. The Oscars were in the thirties, right? When I I don't like. I think the Oscars go back as far as like early thirties, maybe even late twenties. I'd have to like look it up, but I'm pretty sure. I guess I could be wrong, but <laughs> I am looking it up. Uh, it just occurs to me though that I, I, you know, I want to see Citizen Dracula. Um, <laughs> I, I want to know, the movie opens with uh, with Van Helsing staking Dracula, and Dracula says something like "fucking Rosebud," right? And you know, Van Helsing, you know, just before Dracula turns to dust, Van Helsing's like. Well, what the fuck does that mean? Oh, and then I, I want to watch that movie. That and then it's great. an exploration of him finding Dracula's like confidants and you know previous victims who got away, you know, and uh, maybe fellow vampires. Maybe we throw some uh, um, uh, Baron Meinster in there, and you know he basically tries to suss out what Dracula's last words mean. Dude, you should we that that's a movie that should be written. <laughs> Citizen Dracula would be awesome. <laughs> I would love that movie. Um okay, I'm on uh we have gone. You know, we did wonderfully, I think, with Frankenstein must be destroyed. We stayed on point 95% of the time, if not even more than that. Taste the blood of Dracula may not have inspired the same uh <laughs> same conversation. Well, I, I I'll admit I was. I mean, I said already. I, I was. I'm. I was drunk before we started, so <laughs> this was kind of a doomed situation to begin with. I love this. I love the uh, the glowing cross. I love oh the, yeah, yeah. Paul's eyes. I love Alice. Sort of, you know, she's torn there, and then ultimately she chooses Dracula. Um, which I think is really interesting, but I love this entire climax and it's, it's probably as close to a full on action climax as we've gotten since, uh, I mean, there have been variations of it, but really nothing this thrilling since, uh, since brides to me, really. Yeah, I, I think it's a really solid ending. Um, it's very intense. I think we, get into it a little bit more like this is where i feel a little more energy from lee given like what we'd seen so far in the film so i you know and i think it's well shot you know it's it's interesting it's entertaining it's dynamic i like him throwing shit at them (laughs) (laughs) it's like uh fucking donkey kong here at the end it is a little donkey kong so they should that make, should make, oh my god, I was just getting ready to say the same thing. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Take it home. A great, very intense Donkey Kong movie. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so you didn't go the way. I, I want a video game patterned after Donkey Kong, but it's Christopher Lee's Dracula at the top. 
Oh, okay. Right. Of big I was going to say, like, I wanted, like, a Donkey State. Kong movie, but, like, based on that original game. Like, turn that into some sort of weird, giant budget Hollywood movie. Paul, Citizen Kane was nominated for Outstanding Motion Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, yeah, Best, yeah, yeah. Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Scoring of a Dramatic Picture, and Best Sound Recording. Out of all of those nominations, it won for Best Original Screenplay by Herman J. Mankiewicz and Orson Welles. It occurs to me, I still haven't seen Mank. Oh, I haven't seen Mank. I just, I yeah, from what I heard, I was not super interested, but... You know, that's one of those movies, though, to me, that, yeah, I would have watched it opening weekend, like when it first came out, and then everyone was kind of pissing on it, and I'm yeah. like, okay, I'm not going to watch it yet. I'm not going to watch it yet, but it feels like my hope is that that's one of those movies where now that my expectations have been reset, right. I'm going to I'm gonna visit in the future and be like, what the hell were people talking about? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I I just avoided it based on everything I heard. But no, yeah, I, I'm I remember in uh, in school people talking about like Citizen Kane and the amount of Oscar nods it got. So it's like it, it feels like it's a movie that people knew was good, but nece- but didn't necessarily show up for. Um, yeah. I don't I don't subscribe to the whole like it's the best movie ever thing, but I do really like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's good it's it's very good and it, it it pushed the medium forward that's what's so important about it is it it pushed narrative storytelling and filmmaking to a different place which is what stanley kubrick went on to do many many times but you know paul i gotta ask you know on the on the heels of the climax of this movie um if somebody gave you a million dollars, would you bump a line of Dracula blood dust? Jesus. Like if I knew it was real Dracula blood dust. Yeah. Like snort, <laughs> snort the blood of Dracula. I don't know that I would. I mean, cause if I had seen this movie and I truly knew it was Dracula's blood, like that would kill me. I would become Dracula then. You know, what would have been interesting? You know, we were talking about what, you know, if it had been Courtney, or Courtly, as it were, in this movie, uh, who became Dracula, and, you know, we, mm-hmm. we still had Ralph Bates, right? Like, you know, would it have been a revenge tale? You know, it wouldn't have been. Like, he, so why would he have gone after all those guys, right? I think what would have been really interesting, it, and this is the worst way to criticize a movie by talking what about what I would do, but I'm tired, and this is our podcast, so. Um, <laughs> we can do whatever we want. <laughs> you're damn right. And we need to do it all in the next five minutes because we uh, we're coming to the end of this thing. But yeah, have yeah. them, have all four of them drink the blood of Dracula. And then have them, have you ever seen the movie The One with Jet Li? Yeah. How when yep. he, he, he travels from alternate universe to alternate universe, and every time he kills a version of himself in another alternate reality, their power gets distributed over all of the others until – and his, his plan is to travel to all of the alternate universes, kill every version of himself, and then he has all of their power, so he becomes almost like a god, right? Mm-hmm. I would have been jazzed about a Taste the Blood of Dracula movie where Hargood, Secker, Paxton, and Courtley all drank the blood of Dracula. They all have his essence within them. And then it's a matter of one of them wanting to be the alpha. Right? And so, you know, they they all set upon one another and they destroy themselves and their families in the process of trying to be, 
you know, the most powerful version of themselves. You know, they drink one another's blood. They're almost like mini vampires, as it were. And then you eventually get to the final one who, by the end of it, yeah, sure, you know, he he would be, he'd be sort of transmuted into uh, Christopher Lee. I don't know. I think that movie would be a gas. I'm just, I'm, I'm just throwing out <laughs> nonsense here. I, I would, I'd be very down for that movie. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Snort the blood of Dracula. Just throwing that out there. Um, Snort the blood of Dracula. <laughs> all right man we we have made it to the end of that movie uh you know some of it was a commentary uh and some of it yeah. back to uh, <laughs> a little uh bit. Get, getting hammered with hammer and i'm okay with both so uh no i think it was sometimes fun. you gotta deviate and have some fun and i think i think we did we did that tonight and i, I think it's, about it. you know i i think that's uh you know I, th- I think that works given the movie that we actually had to taste the blood of dracula it's kind of a fun movie it's a little loose you know, and, uh, you know, so too was the podcast about it this evening. So, uh, in any case, in the interest of wrapping this up, Paul, why don't you go ahead and tell yeah. people out there where they can find you at online and what they can keep an eye out for from you in the future. Uh, you can find me as always at Paul is great 2000 on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I will tweet about horror movies and stuff and all the things I'm writing you can find it there. Rock on, Paul. As always, thanks for co-hosting. Well, you know, it's a pleasure. <laughs> all right. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, or use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream at us, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.